Who still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you. And he won the pony too. Thank you, fuck you, bye. 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 Hello again, friends. And you are our friends. The light coming into my room is red from this smoke. This is crazy. Where are we? We're on Jim Cornette's drive-thru. <laughs> Another week here. This is nuts outside. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We have lots to talk about. A review. I promise we're going to get the questions this week and lots of wrestling history and so much more with this man, the leader of the cult of Cornette and the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. The colors, the colors. It's, it's, it's red outside. Don't go into the light, Brian. Do not go into the light. What is going on up there with you? You're seeing colors now? The smoke. Apparently there's a wildfire up in Quebec. Oh, I mean, it's the smoke probably. Causing you to see colors. And this wildfire is the worst thing to come out of Quebec since Dino Bravo. And it's hey. just, everything in the sky here is red. The sun covered by smoke. So that's red. And it smells like burning wood. Have you checked out your window to see if there's a giant spaceship blotting out any of the sun over the top of you? Uh, no, but Richard Dreyfus is in the grass over here. Well, that's a bad sign. And, and watch out for Will Smith going out to get his newspaper, because then you're in a whole shitload of trouble. Have you not seen news about the wildfire, Mr. Weather? I, I imagine you're one of these people that watches the Weather Channel all the time. Have you not yes, seen news about yes, the wildfire? Yes, I've seen news about the wildfire, but I, since I'm down here in Louisville, we, we smelled a little smoke uh day before yesterday, I believe it was, but we didn't see any bright red lights coming through our windows. Possibly it's the goddamn authorities over there. Have you thought of that? More orangish now that I look at it than red. Oh, now you change your story. Although it's a red alert day in terms of air quality. Isn't it isn't that Tuesday in New Jersey? Isn't there always an air quality alert in New Jersey? Every time I've been through that state, it smells like a man eating from Munda cheese in a septic tank of a slaughterhouse. Well, maybe on certain parts or in certain parts of New Jersey, but this is... On certain parts? This is Wednesday, not Tuesday. Well, everyone knows it's Friday. Corny. Or No, thank God it's Friday, and everyone knows it's corny. <laughs> Everything is Tuesday, feeling light and groovy. Well, we got bad news to start the program out. When we just sat down, literally, I informed you of this breaking news as we sat down to record this program and we immediately had to throw out all the plans that we didn't make for what we were going to talk about because we usually fly by the seat of our pants anyway but in this case we just heard the news 
that uh, the Iron Sheik passed away. It was announced about 20 minutes ago as we sit here. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't looked well in a while, and he's an older guy. I mean, that's the other thing. Everyone always talks about the wild life he had. He's not a young guy. I mean, he's an older guy, and... I believe was he he's 80, or was 82, right? Because we just did the... The uh, talked about the biography special they did on him just here recently. So pardon us if we repeat anything or whatever, but in this different context. But I think he was early 80s, correct? I believe so. And again, whatever partying he did out of the equation, a lot of bumps. He had a life. I mean, to live to be 82 is pretty miraculous, actually. Yeah, well, and not only that, but we talked about, again, when we watched the biography episode, he was a high-level athlete in a competitive sport that wrestling that causes injuries before he turned pro, and he turned pro in his 30s. So he had a lot of miles on that body, but that's what we were mentioning. You know, we talked about it, his earlier career in pro wrestling people have forgotten what a badass athlete he was because you know by the time that the national expansion happened he was in his early 40s when he you know worked with Hogan and even though he was still pretty stout then as they say when he was younger and was still moving and before any kind of injuries and a little bit lighter weight and the WWF you know road style didn't catch up with him he was doing when he came to Tennessee in 82, you know, the double arm suplexes, the gut wrenches, stuff from the amateur background. And it was cool that the Sheik, Farhat, was obviously, he was not a high level, you know, Olympic level amateur wrestler. So when he did his gimmick, it was all crazy and all wild. And there weren't any suplexes and, you know, goddamn, you know, technical wrestling thrown in there. But with the Iron Sheik, and you remember seeing the the Mid-Atlantic videos especially. Yeah. He was a badass Brock Lesnar-level amateur doing these suplexes that weren't common at the time. Most people didn't do them. And all these amateur throws, and at the same time, was doing the crazy chic gimmick where he was throwing the fireball and pulling a butcher knife literally out of his fucking boot and sawing on guys' heads. So it was, if you believed that that, and also because of his personality, you believed that he was, had a fucking screw loose and was dangerous. He had that aura to him. And a lot of these things are somewhat commonplace now, like a gut wrench suplex into a power bomb, but he was one of the first guys in a national stage to do the gut wrench suplex and put well, it out there. You know, not only was it legitimately an amateur move, and honestly, that's uh that was the finish that Paul Orndorff used in 77 in Tennessee when he was a rookie because it was more of an amateur type thing. He could get that, right? And he wasn't used to working yet. And and the same thing with the Sheik. He was strong enough to, because remember the guys across the board were larger in those days than they are now. And he could, he was like one of the Steiners. He could put anybody up and where he wanted them to go and put them down in the same place. So it was, you know, again, it was like this fucking guy is crazy. And if it, there was very little comedy 
but he could, and, and that's again, ironic considering his, you know, later career and the WWF style, but he was crazy and he was badass, and you could be scared of the guy in his early years as Hossein Arab and the great Hossein and finally the Iron Sheik. But then it, the thing is, again, like the Bushwhackers and the Sheep Herders, he made more money than he'd ever seen in his life later on when he was 50 as a a funny guy with a big belly waving the flag around and going hock patooey. Yeah, you know, he was one of the first wrestlers I ever knew of because of that cartoon and because of that action figure. You know, I knew of him before I ever watched him. So when yeah. I did see him, I felt like I already knew who he was. I knew what side he was on. I knew who he was kind of friends with. Even on the show, him and Nikolai were kind of hanging out. <laughs> I had the figure. Hulk Hogan needed an enemy. There it was. Andre needed a guy to wrestle. It was either the Iron Sheik or Big John Studd. He was one of the first wrestlers I ever knew. Well, and the thing is, also, he's in an exclusive club as far as we've, we've done retrospectives on the various, uh, you know, promotional methods of the McMahon senior and junior. But in what a 40 plus year period, really, neither McMahon kept or had a heel featured as their top guy, as their world champion. More than three weeks, except for Rogers and Billy Graham for Rogers for what maybe a year and a half, Graham for ten months. Well, Rogers, it's a it's a tough. And debate. that was that was yeah. a whole different. Yeah. Well, in actuality, he wasn't even advertised because of New York Athletic Commission rules as the world champion for some of the time that he was working in New York, and that was a whole different animal. Well, again, well. Not to go too far into this, but when he started working pretty exclusively for just Vince and Kohler and then just Vince and Toots, he was the NWA champion. They got the belt off him, but they didn't acknowledge that title change everywhere in right. Vince's territory. So they didn't actually acknowledge the WWF as a thing for a while. He was world champion just a brief period of time, and then they got it to Bruno, and who knows what was really going on behind the scenes. We could all still ruminate on that. Right, and I and I love the the combination of Vince and Toots, uh, but well, and also with Rogers, if the heart problem had not come up and he dropped it to Bruno that quickly, he would he have run longer with it. Nobody knows; it's lost to history. But nevertheless, in the next thirty years, Graham at ten months was the top heel champion, and then you had the transitional guys. Ivan Koloff for, what, three weeks in 71. Stan Stajak for nine days at the end of 73. And that was just to go from Bruno to Koloff to Pedro, and then from Pedro back to Bruno through Stajak. And Vince Jr. did the same thing 10 years later when he it took over, had full control, and, and decided what he was going to do. Got to get rid of Backland. So... The Iron Sheik is perfect because not of the fact that the Iron Sheik was the perfect heel to beat Bob Backlund. The Iron Sheik was the perfect heel to lose to Hulk Hogan. The, you know, the American hero that he's building against the, you know, Iranian menace and, or Iraqi and with, goddamn. Iranian. Iranian. It was, we were mad at Iran then. 
Yeah, he became an Iraqi sympathizer yeah. in 91. He was the Iraqi sympathizer when we got mad at them. But nevertheless, and also Kashyyyk was with that personality and that look and that gimmick, which even if by now, as I said, he's in his 40s, he can't go like he could when he was younger, when he was legitimately, you know, a world-class amateur. But Vince didn't care about that anyway. He, you know, Sheik wasn't going in to get over in mid in mid Atlantic or mid South anymore. He had done that. Now he's going to get over in New York, and Vince wants the gimmick and the personality, and he's the perfect guy for that spot. And that's why, you know, again, he was so memorable. He only had the belt for what? What was it? Was it two weeks? Three weeks? Whatever. Uh, three weeks a month, somewhere in there. Yeah, but. But people remembered that whole exchange to the point where he was able... I mean, Ivan Koloff had a great career off of his run and Stan Stajak to a lesser extent, but the Sheik became one of the biggest stars in the business just for being able to be there and, and drop the belt to Hogan. And when you look at the other options, he was the best one. I know Billy Eadie has said that he thought he was going to be the guy or he was told that. I forget exactly what he says, but he's alluded to it. Mass Superstar would have been an option. Don Morocco would have been an option. Mike Sharp was a heel there. <laughs> Sergeant Slaughter. And the other option would have been a heel Bob Backlund, which wasn't going to happen. And if it had happened, it would have been rushed to get Hogan the belt in January. And Hogan was promised the belt to come in. So yeah, of all and, those and options, all, the Iron Sheet was due respect. the best. All due respect to Bill Idiot. Again, it wasn't about who was the best one to take the belt off Backlund and end his five-year reign. Uh, it was who was best to put Hogan over because Vince knew that's what he was doing. And I'm not saying that Bill Eady couldn't have had a better match to put him over as far as, wow, look at all those, all of the things that Hogan did to him. But it wouldn't have been, it would have been Hulk Hogan beating that masked superstar from Parts Unknown, boy, with the instead of a goddamn person we're potentially going to be at war with. It was, the, you know, the American hero. The only other one I think could have possibly worked, because it could have been interesting, is Ivan Koloff, because he was there. He had already beaten Bruno. So now you could say that Hogan not only beat the Russian menace at the height of Russia-U.S. tensions, the Olympics about to happen, and he beat the guy that beat Bruno, and he's now the world champion. And the guy who beat Backlund. Yeah, but well, where was Ivan was working for for Vince? No, he was finishing up. He was there in November. Was he that? Was he there then? I got to see if he was there in December, but he was definitely there in November. I think he was there in December. How long had he been there? I thought he was already in in uh, Charlotte. Well, never. I've I've. It lost track of his booking book there for 83. But anyway, uh, but then the, the modern chic, the Iron Sheik, you know, began as far as the, you know, what we know of him today and the, the outlandish personality and the cartoons and the ice cream bars and the whole nine yards. And we've told the story that he was one of the first set of what, four or six action figures and got like 80 grand for a quarter back in those days. That was almost 40 years ago. Um, cause as you mentioned, they had to have the kids with the Hogan figure had to have somebody for Hogan to beat up. And I think they've estimated, and I don't know if there's a, uh, an exact amount, but I got to think that they made, you know, at least I, I could double check actually how many units they think they made. 
And again, there were only five options to start. Hogan, Andre, Snuka, John Studd, Iron Sheik. Eventually, they introduced Nikolai and then Piper and Junkyard Dog and everyone, but that was the initial five. And if you bought one, you needed two. And so, again, since there were basically no action figures, you know, you had a million kids with these fucking figures. Hi, yeah, yeah, but uh, it's estimated that there were eight hundred to nine hundred thousand Iron Sheik figures made, including the tag team sets later on with Nikolai Volkov. That's almost as many action figures as I've sold over the last couple of years. You have a better overhead too than this. Well, that's true. I do keep costs down. Feather bottoms work cheaper than those folks up in Stanford in the office. But anyway, so. I guess, um, again, being in his early 80s, people would say, well, geez, you know, it hadn't been that long ago, and that's why I mentioned that he started late. Can you imagine if he'd have gotten out of Iran and and come to the United States and got into the wrestling business earlier? Let's say if he started when people mostly usually start, Let's say right after college at 22, that would have been, instead of starting in, what, 72 with that Burns training camp or 73, he would have broken into business somewhere around 1960. And can you imagine if he'd have been a pro for 25 years already before he even got to the the, you know, uh, modern WWF era? That would have been fucking wild. Him and Danny Hodge would have been going at it for years. Oh my God. You know what that, and, and here's the thing, because remember we talked about Ali Vaziri, his original name and gimmick. He was 218 pounds and had the washboard ab stomach and hair, some hair, not a full head. But you know that a guy like that, I think, did he even, he worked a little bit for Leroy McGurk, didn't he? In between... Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Breaking in for Vern, he went there, he went to Tennessee and a couple of other places just as a preliminary guy. But McGurk would have been all over that. A junior heavyweight shooter that's Olympic level credentials. And Danny Hodge is the top, and he's Iranian. And Danny Hodge is the top guy in my territory, the most famous junior heavy or light heavyweight or whatever wrestler in United States history, that would have been, so they would have been, and as a matter of fact, if, uh, just while we're still supposing, if Sheik had broken in in his 20s instead of 30s and worked for Leroy McGurk against Danny Hodge in the Oklahoma Territory in the mid-60s, who else did they send over there when he first started? Jack Briscoe. Yeah. You would have had an NCAA champion a former Olympic silver medalist and the goddamn Iranian national champion in the same territory. Cause, and that, and McGurk would have loved that because it's lighter weight guys and shooters. And also because Iran wasn't the enemy they would become in 1979, you can have them both, you can make it a bigger story for the sports section than just the heel Iranian. Yeah. It's a sports story now because you have two known collegiate athletes or amateur athletes competing, even though it's professional. And uh, 
again, that was right down McGurk's alley. That's exact. So it would have been interesting if somehow it had come to pass that he started out of his college age years instead of mid thirties. And you first but, saw him when he came to Memphis in 83, or you saw him before that as the Iron Sheik? No, I had seen him a couple of times when Crockett came to Cincinnati. I'd never met him. Um, obviously, we had seen you know the pictures in the magazines of either Hussein Arab or the great Hussein. As we mentioned and when we talked about his biography, there was uh, programs from Texas where I think is the first place he did the gimmick. And the pictures of him looked nothing like the Ali Vaziri you had seen a few years earlier. He was much heavier and bald-headed. So at the time, no internet, and I'm just barely starting to get smart. In those days, when somebody would completely change their look like that and go someplace else under another name, you'd look and go, who the fuck is that? You would your mind would register that they should have seemed like they should have been somewhere before, but you've never heard of them in the magazines or cinema, whatever. And then he had a run in the WWF, but again, that was before cable. But then with the Carolinas, that was about the time that uh, home video came in and as well, Crockett had opened up Cincinnati and I used to go up there and watch some of the live events before I got into business and, had to be traveling the other direction. And again, you know, he would, boy, he moved, he moved and bumped and fucking threw people around and et cetera. But that was again, I, w- I was in the bleachers in Cincinnati when he came to Memphis is when not only I got the chance to meet him and we talked about the car trip he took with me and my mom and some of the other shit. And everybody knows the fuck the commissioner story. But you got a chance to see him up close, and he, you know, as everybody's talked about, loved being a heel and loved getting the heat and wasn't scared of anybody, you know, in the uh, way of doing that, of what was going to come. And sometimes when it, it was actually, in Louisville, it was the Sheik, the Iron Sheik that had a match with Lawler and the stipulation was that if Lawler won, he'd get five minutes with Jimmy Hart. And that's where Lawler did win, but it was a disqualification because Sheik had done something, hit him with something, done something, where he was pretty much laying there almost unconscious, just selling. And so Hart says, okay, well, now he gets the five minutes because he's the winner. And drops an elbow and covers Lawler and pins him. One, two, three. Oh, my God, the people were mad. And fucking Sheik just, come here, Jimmy. And he grabbed and he picked Jimmy up and fucking carried him through the people. They had cops, but the, you know, cops had their hands full, but (laughs) Sheik carried Jimmy through the people so they wouldn't kill him or stab him or beat him up or whatever. He He didn't give a shit. Speaking of not giving a shit, that's become kind of his online persona. What do you think happens to his Twitter account and everything now? Do you think he lives on in the afterlife? Well, I hope... Fuck the kingdom of heaven, whatever he would say on there. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. Has he actually been physically doing that, or is it somebody that handles that for him at this point? Sort of like a... Right, that's what it is. You know, so... I think they've got the flavor of the Sheik, but well, would it be in bad taste if you tried to still talk like the Sheik, but you know Sheiky is gone? 
I guess so. Maybe it, it should become more of a, you know, a tribute to greatest moments of rather than trying to sound first person or imitating the style or whatever. No one in wrestling would ever do bad taste. I would never think. Of well, no, one. but see, the secret <laughs> about wrestling is doing bad taste in good taste. I've said that many times. Anyway, hopefully we've done some bad taste in good taste here. And we're sorry to hear about the yeah. Iron Sheik. Obviously, Kosrao Vaziri, one of the, you know, iconic. They throw that. The legend's not an exclusive enough club anymore. Everybody's a goddamn legend these days. I get now it has to be icon. So he's one of the iconic names in all of professional wrestling. That's right. And when you think about big things that happened, he was the guy who dropped the belt to Hogan, something that was replayed at the beginning of their show for a few years, every week to the tune of Thriller. I don't think they paid any rights for that. <laughs> but that was something everyone saw. He was on, I believe, the first Saturday night's main event and some of those big ones that were getting those giant numbers on network TV. He yeah. was in the tag team title match. Him and Nikolai beat Wyndham and Rotunda at WrestleMania 1. He was in a Cindy Lauper video for uh, the Goonies song. Uh, the Goonies are good enough, which is a great song. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, and he was on the cartoon and his figure was out there. So, you know, despite the different things that happened and he would end up working for world-class briefly and going to the NWA and then going home and being paid to work for the NWA for a period of time there, he's one of the most recognizable names and faces and personalities around wrestling ever. Yeah. And, and see, remember again, when George Scott brought him in for that WCW thing, he, you know, he, at that point in 1989, he was almost 50 and like, you know, George Scott's remembering the iron Sheik that he had in 19, what was it? 79, 80, not 1989, 90. And, you know, it just, it didn't work, but. That was George Scott's fault. It wasn't Sheik's fault for taking the money or for taking the renewal because they forgot to fucking send him his notice. So, anyhow, um, we hate to hear that again, but, you know, it, 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 it's, it seems like time is passing quicker. People are 80 years old. We turn around. We don't even realize it till it happens. It is pretty crazy. How old's Keith I'm, Richards? in in what cockroach years i don't know i don't see if, if, if the difference that i feel between well he wasn't even as old as the iron sheik son of a bitch the difference i feel between 41 and 61 i don't know what 81 would feel like i have a idea i may know and again our <laughs> thoughts and prayers to the uh, family of the iron sheik and the friends of the iron sheik but the only thing I could think of that could be sadder or worse than the passing of a wrestling legend is another Monday night on the USA Network. Jim, I understand you watched Raw this week. Well, and you know, we can't be that unfair because as Raw goes, this was not a rotten Raw. They, this was at least half-baked. Uh, there was a couple of things I actually enjoyed and at least some hope for the future. And... Apparently, as we'll mention also here at some point in the program, they're on a ratings roll. And they were back up here to almost 2 million on the fast, overnight, international number game, whatever they fucking send out. 
We haven't heard from Thurston Howell the third. You and I, we haven't uh, officially, but it seems like the raw numbers were up also. And they were at the Hartford Civic Center, which looked great. It was packed. Looked great right down the road from Stamford. That's apparently why they had numerous visitors, including the leader of the evil empire himself. His hot air balloon landed in the parking lot. Vince McMahon was there, apparently not being too overbearing. They said he changed the, the order of matches around, but I don't think he rewrote everything from scratch this week. You know what's the biggest sign he's not being overbearing? The panting announcer. <laughs> we always hear about Vince screaming in everyone's ear. Mick Foley quit because he couldn't put up with the screaming from Vince McMahon. Vince micromanages and yells. Michael Cole would be a five-star announcer if not for Vince screaming at him. Then how does this guy get on the show? Just, oh, that breath. Kevin Owens. Oh, he's panting. He's just panting. And then he like just says names and nicknames and back to the panting. I can't deal with this fucking guy. Loud noises. Oh, oh look, and Perium. Oh, oh, how is Vince allowing that? For everyone who wants to say Vince micromanages and screams at these guys, how is that getting on Raw? Well, see, that's the way they talk over across the pond. <gasps> Don't you know? They're oh, oh, it's oh. the queen. Oh, oh, it's the queen. Oh, it's the prince. Oh, oh, it's the count. Oh, it's the Count and his wife, the cunt. Oh. <laughs> That's what they say over there. I'm just telling you. They say that word a lot. It means different things over there across the pond. It's like he's kissing someone under a tree. Like just, <laughs> oh, 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 look at, oh. And Corey Graves, and Corey Graves is trying to make his voice deeper to get away from that. He's like, I don't know what you're doing. You know, he can tell he's trying not to do that. Well, I don't think that you make those noises from kissing, and they'd be muffled anyway. Because <laughs> if your mouth was cut, I think you're, you're getting a full fledged fucking old fashioned under the tree over there. If the visionary, <sighs> Seth freaking Rollins, just says names and pants. I can't deal with it. He's having visions. <laughs> at, le at least the announcer's not the one seeing red fucking lights shining in his window. It's more orange, more orangey right. red, and uh, the wind is just, the trees are blowing all over the place, and the sky is red. Wait a it's minute, like you got an orange reflection through the window and a bunch of fucking hot air blowing? Have you checked to see if Trump's in your driveway? Uh, you know, Bedminster's right over here, so that's not an outrageous thought, but no, it's just, it looks like the fallout after the apocalypse out here right now. But anyway, back to, but back to Raw. Back to Raw. So Seth Franklin, he's one of the, he's one of those uh, new world champions you hear about. They got so many of them now. He's world champion number three, and he comes out to do the in ring promo at the start of the program, and he's growling now too. In addition to laughing and cackling ah! and dancing and prancing, he's growling. And it's been two years since there's been a world heavyweight championship match on Raw. Even though that two years ago his title did not even exist, but nevertheless, we get the point. But he says that's too long, so he's issued an open challenge tonight, and it's been answered by Damian Priest. And just then, Judgment Day music plays, because here comes the aforementioned Davian Priest, Davi Davian? Damian Priest and Finn Balor. 
and together they say that you know they did some scripted funny stuff and prompt the fans to sing to fill some time because there was nothing wrong with this interview nobody got lost and the fans liked it it's just that again everything said here could have been said done accomplished in so much less time right between the long entrances and the long musical interludes and etc but a priest sounds like an adult which is refreshing and the way he did his promo it was it was a babyface promo and as well he you know he said he didn't need his group to beat Seth Franklin Rollins and later on that will tie in in our our main event of the evening but should they I guess they're at least teasing some dissension and should they be doing that now when they're operating the bloodline story where we're trying to figure out who's on whose side should another group be not on the same page amongst themselves Brian I think if the bloodline's going to be exclusive to SmackDown, it's okay to have something that's exclusive to Raw, and the Judgment Day have eaten up a lot of TV time. There's someone from the women's division, the champion. Dominic could do single stuff or team up with one of these guys, and then these guys could both team up or do single stuff. So I'm okay with doing something like that here if the bloodline's not going to be over here mostly. Yeah, but then does Damian Priest become a babyface in this? I think if Vince McMahon was involved, or if anyone's been paying attention, they would probably think that beyond Rhea Ripley, Damian Priest is someone they could elevate and do something with, whether they'll do it the right way or the wrong way, that remains to be seen. The WWE way would all of a sudden be for him to start smiling a lot. So if you start <laughs> noticing he's smiling more, he will be their babyface. Well, the thing is, I'm I'm thinking, as you said, if they are paying attention, they see him as a guy they need to elevate. But I think it it would be as a top heel more longer, and then it should be. But nevertheless, again, this wasn't bad; just a little long. And then Seth said, "I will see you in the main event." Oh, and I'm sorry, Seth made uh, Damien agree to leave the Judgment Day in the back. And Damien, he didn't make him. Damien did straight up like a man against Finn's, apparently against his better thoughts because he reacted to that. So Judgment Day will be in the back. It's going to be one-on-one. -on -one. And Seth said, see you in the main event. And I swear to God, what is that Monty Python routine, the Ministry of Funny Walks? <laughs> or, That's right. Did you see it? John Cleese. Yeah. No, I mean, did you see Seth Franklin Rollins do the John Cleese? Yes. Funny, what, what the? <laughs> we are the order of men whom hum between words. Hmm? Again, he's a visionary, a revolutionary. What is the vision that is so revolutionary other than a guy who needed something and now just acts like a wacky? Just act like a guy whacked out on PCP. That's all it is. <laughs> That's all it is. I don't know. I've seen some of those fucking police videos of the people on PCP, and they don't seem to be nearly having as much fun as he is. The people love the music, and they like reacting to the music. That's one of the big things with wrestling right now. It's about that kind of experience more than actually sitting there and reacting to any of the matches. You sit there in silence, and you watch any of the actual wrestling you get on these shows. But they like his shtick. 
You know, when he's serious, I like him. I buy him. But when he's out there talking like superstar Billy Graham or whatever the fuck he's trying to do, I don't believe any of it. It's just a guy performing. Billy Graham, you believed, was kind of this, you know, this guy who thought he was bigger than life. Look at him. He kind of was this guy who thought he was bigger than life. I don't buy it from Franklin. Franklin ain't selling you, huh? Nope. Is he selling you? He ain't selling me. Not with with the work is fine. Not with the, uh, I don't know what the fuck's going on with, as you, you know, as you said, the PCP business. But you wouldn't think he'd be able to pass the uh, the test then, the wellness check that they do, all that PCP. What happens with the wellness program with the merger? Well, that's an interesting. Have we heard anything about the uh, wellness program lately? I haven't heard a word. Of, I haven't even heard the word wellness <laughs> in quite a while. No, I've heard the word sickness a number of times. <laughs> all right, moving on into the sickness. Uh, I wasn't down with the next sickness, the money in the bank qualifier for the women's portion of the program. Um, and again, I registered my displeasure that every time they have a stipulation match, they had to have one for the girls too, and put it on before the guys to just dull your appetite. So Becky wrestles Cruella. And Cruella DeVille looks so good. Why does she, and they featured her as the crooked executive with Pierce for a while, et cetera. But why does she just always do jobs? I don't know that she's ever won a match in recent memory. Maybe I'm wrong, but didn't she have some kind of background too originally? Like an MMA or something? Or maybe not MMA. I'll double check, but at least training. I think, I think you need to, to check on that. Because if she had the, the the MMA experience, then she'd be teamed up with Ronda instead of Shayna. It'd be Ronda and Cruella. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter because Becky won with a rock bottom-like thing, and we moved on. They did a big SmackDown bloodline recap of all of that drama, and if you haven't heard about that, well, bye, Cracky, it's up on YouTube now. On our channel, not theirs. Don't watch it. Just listen to us talk about it. Hey, uh, under her real name, yes, she has a record of one, one, and one. One, uh, actually, excuse me, three. One, wait a minute, is it one, one, <laughs> one, three, 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 <laughs> six, 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 or I'm, nine, I'm, nine? I'm trying to read it the way they have it here. It's all fucked up. She has won two fights and lost one. She won one by knockout, one by submission. Oh, God damn. Seems like she could handle some of these girls then, doesn't it? Anyway, so somehow I wasn't, because again, I saw, I'm fast forwarding to get to the next match. And I see Owens and Zane, and then uh, they're in the back standing by the anvil cases or whatever. But here comes Gunther. And his stooges, and basically he pisses off Kevin Owens, who now is apparently noted for his insane temper. Just the uncontrollable, maniacal fury that he breaks out into whenever he loses control of himself. You've heard this many times about Owens. Yeah, I guess this outweighs the pacifist in Sami Zayn. Yes, you you got an unstable maniac on one side and a, a pacifistic individual on the other side trying to keep them calm the same insane connection 
uh, you're doing the market. Yeah, this is creative services stuff. <laughs> Where the fuck is the notepad? We don't need to call creative. Said Debbie Bonanzio over creative services. That's who Vince would want to get on the phone. Anyway, so Owens just says, come on, let's fight. And he storms out to the ring with Zane and toe for a match that he apparently just decided they should have on this national television program. And as he's walking out there, the announcers are like, well, I hope somebody makes this official. And son of a bitch, wouldn't you know who won the pony, Brian? They made it official. I couldn't believe, I thought it was going to be a lot of red tape going through a lot of fucking governmental hoops and ladders and et cetera, but no, boom, it was done. So I watched this because I love Gunther and old KO can go when he wants to be a fucking a team player. But you know, I'm, I've, I've got to put Owens over because I think physically he looks the best he's ever looked. Now you may say Cornette, that's faint praise. Because Owens went to, did you hear about this when he went to a plastic surgeon? No. He went to a plastic surgeon. He said, Doc, make me look like I did 20 years ago. The doctor said, what, you want me to put the tail back on? Oh, stop it. So anyway. He'd be nice. Well, I'm trying. So anyway, <laughs> he does physically look better than he had, and it's not a rib. He still looks like shit compared to all the tanned oiled guys that go to the gym but he's easily 30 pounds lighter or more than he was in the ring of honor days when we asked him to lose weight and he's tattooed his pale flabby arms to the point where even though he doesn't or can't tan there all of the really white pale skin with stretch marks is covered up with tattoos and even though his gear is still somewhat baggy they make him wash it, and it all matches. You remember what we used to deal with when he was in Ring of Honor, when he would come out there with the fucking the furniture disease where his chest was in his drawers and just wearing whatever baggy stretch shit that he had, and we couldn't get him to even trim the beard. So the point is, they've done what they can with him here, and he's apparently cooperated with it, and he don't look as bad as he used to. But he could always work. That's what the issue was. And he could work here, and Gunther's great. And again, they work this. where They're portraying Gunther as a dominant physical force that usually carries the fight to the opponents, and the opponent has to sell and fight back from underneath, and Owens did a great job of that because he can sell, and he can fight back from underneath. They still went to break when they started the thing in two minutes, for fuck's sake, but they kept a pace up. And again, Gunther's good. He's solid. He's aggressive. He explodes when he needs to with whether it be the chop or the clothesline or whatever, and then slows it back down and is deliberate and acts like a heel. And they got a long, old-fashioned heat on Owens where... He would get hope spots. He would try to fight back. He would succeed in fighting back. But before he could make his comeback, Gunther had shut him back down. So he was still in the underneath 
position. And then, again, there was a part where Owens finally reversed a German. They were both down. They traded forearms. Gunther shut him down again. But then he made a mistake of toying with him, and Owens was up with a flurry of super kicks and the cannonball in the corner where he puts his ass in the guy's face upside down. Good Lord, that that potentially should be deadly. And he got a two count with that, but then they start going back and forth. And finally, again, they built to the finish. They didn't do all their big shit until at the last, as they should be. Owens went to the top. Or no, Owens hit a fisherman buster, as they call it, and got a two count. Owens went to the top, but Gunther hit the superplex two count. Gunther went to the top and came off, but Owens got his knees up on the splash, and then he went up and hit a swanton and got a two count. So they're building them. And then suddenly, one of the Stooges pops up. Sammy jerks him down. Both the Stooges jump Sammy. Owens rolls out on the floor. And they, they, Owens throws one of the Stooges back in the ring in front of the referee and stunners him and stands up and Gunther schoolboys him from behind one, two, three. And in, again, in front of the referee, it, it should have been a disqualification. There was no reason to throw the fucking guy in the ring, except that I'm sure Owens wanted to hit a stunner. And that was the only way he could hit a stunner. But it didn't make any sense to throw the guy in the ring, be active with him, referee standing there and looking at it, and then be, be so stupid that you just stand up and the guy schoolboys you from behind one, two, three. So it was a really good match with a rotten finish that just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I can't add too much to it other than I think the, I think the match was an interesting match. People were really into it. We heard from people that wanted you to watch it. The fans got really into it. And although it's a preposterous setup, and again, just all of a sudden, angry Kevin Owens, what? <laughs> Let's go! And it just creates a match. He storms off. You know, the, you know, the guy's panting while Kevin's screaming. <laughs> yeah, it's usually the way that it happens. Kevin starts screaming, the other guy's panting. And then, usually those are the guys in the office, though. Uh, but then... You know, even like the Imperium, how many times is this guy, Wilhelm or whatever his name is, going to walk up just slowly, gentle, like he's extending gentlemen I, to an unnatural degree that is getting silly. Well, and that's that's what they've done with the Stooges. They, they yeah. don't win anything, or if they do fluke win something, it's over underneath people. They get beat up two-on-one by upper baby faces, and generally... <laughs> just there to make a nuisance of themselves. You can't take them seriously of their, of their own accord. Now, with that said, once Gunther showed up in the middle of them, exposing or kind of giving away that they're not going to do a tag team match, thank God, because again, they always lose. You know what you're going to get. Yeah. You realize you're going to get a Gunther match. It's going to be one of these guys. If it's happened, I haven't seen it, but I was intrigued by Gunther Owens, and they did it right away. We did hear that Vince, one of the things he did work on was the, the arrangement of the segments. The order of events, as we say in the industry. What went where? So you have to wonder, maybe in the original script, this wasn't going to happen right away. Maybe it was to set up something later in the show. But, you know, the, the setup was preposterous, but having the match right away 
kind of gave it some spirit where it, it didn't helped expect it. Yeah. And the fans you didn't, were you didn't have all that time to literally between the first segment setting something up for the main event and the main event, you have time to watch Gone with the Wind. And so you forget sometimes. I'm sure we'll get Gunther versus Sammy one of these weeks. I worry about when it becomes, well, they already kind of exposed when it becomes a trios feud, who the third party is going to be with Sammy and Owens. But it was a good match. It was the best match on Raw in a while, I think. And you know what? With, with Gunther, um, it, it, he instantly adds a little bit more seriousness when he's involved in something, as you said. And I would love to see Gunther and Sammy because Sammy, when he's in his element and, in, and everybody's with him, the crowd, is a Ricky Morton-level seller. And that's what he could get some emotion out of people with Gunther. So at least, you know, something interesting. But unfortunately, they're the tag team champions. We don't want to see them in any tag team matches. And for whatever we want to say about how bad they treat everyone else, at least they're keeping Gunther strong still. Well, yeah, but then after getting beaten up in that match, uh, the next thing they showed was in the back, the Gunther Stooges got both of them beaten up by Riddle himself <laughs> they went and pissed him off and he just he chucked one over a case and put a submission to hold on the other one and they had to pull him off of him the guy was screaming so what they they got beat up in the finish of the match in the arena and then came to the back and one guy beat him up again i rest my case uh, did, uh you're happy of course we got new women's tag team champions you know what? I'm not going to shit on any of this because I watched this segment and I found it enjoyable. What? The match? The setup for the match? I mean, look, the backstage segments are ridiculous. Everyone's standing at an angle that no one would ever stand at if you're talking to someone to your right or to your left. Beyond that, I thought it was an okay match. Well, here's my problem. As soon as they came up and stood at all those unnatural <laughs> perpendicular angles... I saw that the new girls that they brought up, what's what's their names? Uh, Can't I Carter and Katie No Chance? See, this is part of the problem. They gave them the stupidest names, and especially in one of those cases, it's counterproductive to do that, but whatever. We'll talk about that in a sec. Well, I saw old Can't I Carter and Katie No Chance standing there next to Shayna and Rhonda, who we are, have established are probably of average female height. I'd say around 5'6", five, 5'7", five, thereabouts, maybe. Is that average? Well, it's probably average for a, a female in the United States of America. Really? Huh. Well, look it up while I'm fucking bloviating over here. All right. And I see them... And, and they're about six inches shorter than the uh, male interviewer who doesn't appear to be an ex-NBA star, so I don't think he's seven feet tall. Five feet four. Is the... Okay, then they're about average. Five, 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 six. Right? Oh, can't I, Carter and Katie, no chance, are easily six to eight inches shorter than Shayna and Rhonda. And when they got in a ring, they would have to stand tiptoe to be able to peek over the top rope. And I'm the, here are the former UFC women's champion and her badass MMA-style training partner 
against these two girls that look like they're 19 years old on spring break and they've just been released from a camp of fucking dwarves. It's it. It just see. Here's the thing. And Ronda and Shayna beat them in three minutes. And Ronda and Shayna, I've actually liked them as a heel tag team. It's the best use of Ronda in a very long time. Not to say that it's the greatest use of her. But here's the thing. I don't even know. I haven't watched too much of them in NXT. But Katana Chance, which is one of the stupidest names anyone has ever had on the main roster. That's Casey Cannonazero. Wait, what now? She was on American Ninja Warrior. I knew her before she got into wrestling because she was on Ninja Warrior. She was able to do this incredibly difficult obstacle course, and she was a star on that show. I don't know what the ratings were, but they had a lot of viewers. I don't know why they would change her name unless they just somehow couldn't license any of that footage. But she's a smaller girl. Well, they could still talk about it. They could not change her name. They could do so many different things. They changed her name. She was on TV. Maybe more people saw her do that than this. I don't know. But that could be used to sell why a smaller girl could do this. She's shown that she has strength. Then can we get her a partner that is tall enough to ride the rides at fucking... Six Flags. I've never seen her partner really much before, so I can't argue with you on that. But I thought they were fine for their use here, but I just don't understand. Change the names of nobodies. Why would you change the name of someone who's been on TV like for weeks before? Not like a one-time thing. She competed in this thing, and she was featured for a while. Makes no How sense. How did I miss it? Well, you don't really watch Ninja Warrior, do you? I don't really do that. Or no. American Ninja Warrior, I should and say. And I've her I've never seen her wrestle. I have seen her box, but No, you haven't. You see, you're being um, crude. She, she's a multi sport star. It is getting more and more orange, bright orange, orange outside. It's, you almost said red. It's bright orange now outside. Well, ladies and gentlemen, while Brian is fiddling up there in New Jersey Burns. So back to the Money in the Bank qualifying matches, this time in the men's division, Ricochet against Shaky Nakamura. And at this point, did, did the uh, a panting announcer, did he somehow pant out the news that Money in the Bank is at 3 o'clock Eastern? Did I hear I that missed on commentary? That. I missed that because I was probably fast-forwarding. I did not hear that. No, where Can is you it? I don't, can you look that up again while I am extrapolating at length here on what happened? Yeah, whoa, here it is. It's, uh, said here at 2.30. Hold on. What? <laughs> the fuck? Where are, they, where are they in fucking Newfoundland? Money in the Bank 2023. Saturday, July 1st, special spark, spark. Special, special, sp special spark time, A folks. special start time. Bring the kids. Of 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Why? Live exclusively on Peacock in the United States. Where is it from? That's what I'm trying to figure well, out. Yeah, well, that's what I'm. Where is it from? Time and location. It just has a date. Hold on. Nome, Alaska. What the fuck's going on? 2023. It will be coming from disseminating from London, England. That makes sense. Well, how did we miss this factoid? We were spending so much time thinking about Wembley, we didn't focus on whoever the hell, the, the O2 Arena. 
We just don't listen to the announcers. The O2 Arena is a big building. How many people are going to go to this event? Well, from what one would figure, probably all of them. Because they say they don't get any big events in the UK, so they're giving them every big event they can, Captain. All right. Well, anyway, it's going to be, and that's a, on a Saturday afternoon. Correct? Correct. Correct. Nothing, right, like well, nothing like watching people fall off ladders under their head on a Saturday afternoon. Well, already that's going to be an issue for you after Saudi Arabia when you say, I just can't watch this in the middle of the day. But hey, the, I just can't. I can, like, around 4, 5 p.m., that's kind of like, okay, let's, let's get something going. Yeah, so. you're not ready for any kind of violence until after 4 o'clock in a day. We'll let all potential home invaders know when to engage you. I'm ready. All right, so anyway, back to Ricochet and Shaky Nakamura. They're, they have the match that they had, and they're fighting on the top rope, and suddenly Bronson Reed comes out and just runs in the ring and attacks them and beats them both up. The referee rings the bell, calls the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing off. And Reed splashes Ricochet off the top rope, and that looks great. What a fucking splash. I'm nervous for his knees over a long period of time. But it looks great, and he stands up and leaves, and they're laying there two grease stains on the canvas. <laughs> grease stains on the canvas of life. So that's what happened there. But now who, what, what, is there an opening now in the Money in the Bank match, or do they just drop one of the seven or eight people in it? I don't know. I don't know if they panted that explanation. Oh. <gasps> <sighs> All right. How? See, I ought to be there. When he went, ha, 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 then I could go, ha. And then people could make loops of, ha, ha, ha. See, the, the question is, do they tell him be out of breath? Or is it like his choice? Is he like, you know, I think I have a great idea. I'll just always be out of breath. <laughs> He's like the, the harried Britisher. <gasps> that you see in the movies in the 60s when he's, he's just all flutter. Oh, cup stomp. He's <sighs> <sighs> probably well, pumping the I desk. Was, I don't know what the fuck's happening over there. I was ready to hold my breath on the next segment because you had, you go from the sublime to the ridiculous, from the outhouse to the penthouse, you had the Miz TV with Cody Rhodes. So... You can look at it, whereas it, it it would probably be the worst Cody will ever be just because Miz is there, or the best Miz TV will ever be just because Cody's on. Oh, come on. This was, way you're looking at. This was all right. The Miz, in this usage, the Miz was not a problem here. In this usage. I, I'll, I'll agree with that. But anyway, uh, again, huge pop for Cody. He is... is He's the biggest baby face in wrestling. You can say that Roman is the biggest star and Brock may be per capita the biggest attraction, but Cody's got to be the biggest baby face, right? You say a big pop. They chanted his name. Well, yeah. But I mean, just the pop when yeah. they know they're going to see him. And then when he's coming out, they're doing the whoa, whoa, and they're chanting Cody, Cody, and the etc. I think one of the lessons of Cody Rhodes over the last several years, and it's played out now perfectly with WWE, is for a lot of wrestlers, treat yourself seriously. Insist that other people will. Cody, 
Cody forced himself into being a main eventer because he treated himself like one. And this is the payoff right here. Well, and that's uh, that's rule A. And rule B is even if you do that, you can't fully achieve your potential if you are surrounded by people who are not doing that. Because, again, a presentation has had a lot to do with this. When you can... When Cody was trying to do strong psychological angles or anything that people were, were required to think about or et cetera, like he's been doing here. And the next segment was, you know, chaos with legless people. It, it, it wasn't the, it wasn't the right. What the, the fuck? That's a summation. <laughs> it's a description I've never heard before. Chaos with the legless people. <laughs> it's, it's even worse because you ought to see him try to run around. Oh, Johnny um, Eck this week on AEW. You know, but that's the thing is it it dulls the everything. But when he's in a professional environment where it may be silly and it may be childish, but it's not just chaotic and fucking everybody just openly shitting on things. It means a, a, a different world, and he's now the he's gone from one of the top guys for that audience, one of the top guys, the way he was presented as well in AEW, to the biggest babyface in wrestling, and survived a goddamn injury where he was out for nine months after he had started it, came came back, picked it up, and his enhanced it. Yes. We were talking about the Miz TV, weren't Miz we? Miz TV with Cody Rhodes. So. With the very popular Cody Rhodes. The very popular. Um, and Miz, of course, say, you look dashing tonight. And I like the way Cody kind of, you know, reacts without reacting to some of the little asides. But Miz mentions that, you know, Brock broke your arm and beat you, and you challenged him to show up and fight you anywhere you are appearing. Aren't you stupid? <laughs> and See, I like the Miz here. That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Again, maybe, maybe he needs Cody to produce him. And Cody said, no, 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 I, I'm not stupid. I may be crazy. Maybe it took some balls, and you know a little about that. Of course, they had tiny balls. And basically, Cody, and I think they're probably trying to stretch this to, I don't know where, so what date SummerSlam is this summer, but we need a couple months out of this. So he says Brock is in his, you know, annual hibernation, so we won't see him for a while. And they kind of boo, but we've established that Brock is not coming back immediately because he can't fight him again till his arms well. So we're not going to see Brock again till Cody's arm heals. But Miz has a surprise for Cody because he's invited another multi-generational talent to come out and play. And it's Dominic Mysterio. And here comes Dominic and Mommy. Good old Rhea Ripley. And I like the part where Miz started to speak when, we, when they got in the ring and, and Rhea said, shut up, Miz. <laughs> Let Dominic speak. No, she didn't. Dom Dom. She never or calls Dom him Dominic. Dom. Okay, Dom I'm Dom. sorry. Let Dom Dom. And of course. And he said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah. But they're doing the thing uh, where every time he tries to talk, they scream over him. 
And then Rhea obviously protests this and makes it worse. And Dominic had a good line. He called Cody a little birdie with a broken wing. But he said that Cody's a bad father for not being at home, a deadbeat dad, just like his his dad, Ray. And that whole thing. And and Cody came back with Dominic's. I, I know your 15 minutes in prison was was rough. And that, you know, you had to go through at WrestleMania the public spanking by your dad. But I'll agree with you. I think your father, Rey Mysterio, has made some terrible mistakes. And I'm looking at one of them. And all the people just... <laughs> And again, I, I hear Dusty. I hear Dusty, but at that point, and it, I thought something was going to happen, but now I'm happy that no more happened than this. I thought, are they seriously not going to try to book a match, whatever, here? But when Cody had said that and basically told Dominic off, Dominic, they, they're starting to leave, and Cody turns to... I don't know, get his jacket or acknowledge Miz or whatever he was going to do. And Dominic ran up behind Cody and sucker slapped him and then ran back behind Rhea Ripley and hid behind her so Cody couldn't get to him while she's going, come on, punch me, punch me. And then they backed up out of the ring and Cody did not get the last word on Dominic. While they're backing up and laughing about what they did, Cody turns around, there's Miz standing there and he, pow, he just levels him with the cast, knocks him out which was the perfect way to end it. And I'm glad they left this open with, instead of Cody, you know, DDT and Dominic on his head or whatever and kissing Rhea, it, you know, in years past or times past, they may have just said, fuck it, Cody will beat everybody up. But here they left Dominic with his heat. What'd you think of the whole performance? I really liked this segment. I really liked that. The Miz was really good here. They didn't treat him like a main event or anything. They treated him like the Miz. And just a simple shot at the end and him going down. Cody, the way Cody like bonked him. You know, that he yeah. went down. It was a perfect ending to this. You took Cody, who got the biggest babyface reaction by far on this show. I guess we could say the biggest babyface reaction we've seen anyone get on either of these shows in a while. And then you bring out the biggest... I don't even know, know if we could say the biggest heel. The guy that people want to treat like the biggest heel. He's the most unpopular guy. Although, I don't want to say they were piping in the boos, but at the very end of the booing, I didn't see anyone standing up when I was looking in the background at now, their faces. I think, here's what they're doing. And if I'm not mistaken, and if, and if I am, somebody can let me know if they were there live in the building. But what I'm thinking they're doing is whenever that starts with Dominic, they're potting the crowd mics all the way up. So they're magnifying what's actually happening rather than putting in fake shit that's not really happening at all. But it, because remember the other day I said they, I think on the AEW show it was, they had the crowd mic turned up so loud you could, or so far you could hear the people's heartbeats trying to For hear some response. Yeah. yeah. And 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 they're trying to do that with Callus now in AEW. The the Dominic thing, they started doing it themselves, and I think that's giving people the idea. Let's let's pick the the most obnoxious heel and not let him talk. But I think they're accentuating the with the level of the crowd mics, depending on what's going on. 
and Cody and the Miz both lean in like they're listening, like they're trying to hear him. Yeah. If you notice, yeah. which is a nice <laughs> little touch there. Cody versus Dominic. They didn't give it away. Give it a little bit of time for people to think about it. I don't know if you saw Twitter, but Rhea and Brandy have had an exchange of tweets. Oh, good Lord. My dream feud may be a possibility. <laughs> My, if, if, if Rhea Ripley feuded with Brandy Rhodes, first of all, that will turn Rhea to the biggest baby face ever. Second of all, it'll be the greatest feud in the history of wrestling. And both of them can say to the other, I'm mommy, bitch. I don't even want to start guessing what Brandy's promos would be, but I would sign up for that. If you promised me that would be on the show, I would watch it. But you know why I don't think they were going to do it? All, all kidding aside, I don't think Cody could stay the baby face he is with Brandy. Yeah, that that would there would be an element of that. Yeah, and I would love her as a heel because I think she would be a dynamite heel on the mic. You think Dominic's getting booed? Put Brandy out there. <laughs> but we're going to get Cody versus Dominic at some point, and the development of the Dominic Mysterio character and the relationship with Rhea has been fantastic. And just like the bloodline, like I said before about the judgment day, I want to see where all this is going. They didn't get them away from Rhea when she got the world title. All of this is continuing. And Dominic Mysterio's gone from a guy we didn't think had much of a future because he wasn't showing much other than a smile to maybe the most enjoyable heel in the business. Wait, and remember it looked like that we talked about it, that they may separate Rhea because she was becoming, you know, a big star on her own. But now they're kind of having their cake and eating it too because they didn't have to. I've, it looked like they were going to switch her baby face because people were cheering for her. They didn't have to. But with her as the women's champion, still a heel so she can still be with Dominic, they still love her, but at the same time, she and Dominic are so great together that there's no need to sabotage that by splitting them up. So we're seeing more Rhea Ripley. That ain't bad. You know what is bad, though, don't you? Another Money in the Bank qualifying <laughs> match. I didn't remember what the next segment was. I wasn't sure. And Natalia and Zoe Stark, and all due respect to Natalia, but again, Zoe won with Trisha's help. And then Paul E. was in the locker room and invites us all to watch Friday on SmackDown to see Jay Uso make the historic choice of uh, who he's going to stand beside. And Paul predicts that his, since part of his job as the wise man is delivering bad news, that the news will rip apart the Anawahi and Fatu dynasties when Jay makes his choice and stands by his brother solo. Paul says Jay can share a womb with his twin, not a womb, not a, not a Baba Wawa womb, but a W-O-M-B womb. He can share a womb with his twin, but he's closer to Roman Reigns as his tribal chief, and he will acknowledge that fact or else. So we got a big deal going on on SmackDown. You know, things happen with the bloodline, and you're like, yeah, things are happening, and then it goes right back to the slow pace of... We're going to have another segment to announce <laughs> an announcement. I mean, it'll be good. We'll see what happens. I thought he kind of made his choice, but I guess he didn't. So now we get well, to see no, him make his choice. Remember, Jay didn't, he didn't commit physically to anybody. He just stood around and wrung his hands. And the last thing that we heard was that Roman said Jay's going to fall in line like he always does. 
That's what he's going to do. He's just speaking for him. Just so you know what happens when you assume, though. When you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. My big question remains, how much longer can they go with just the four of them and Heyman? Do they have to get someone else or a couple more people in the mix? I'm thinking they got to they gotta go to the island of relevancy and find the next available candidate for entry into the bloodline. I say Jacob Fatu, who's currently still apparently signed to the island of Ill- irrelevancy. And, um, but nevertheless... So then the the next match was a real, as Lance Russell would say, a stem winder, or perhaps as Gordon Soley would say, a pier six brawl, or JR might say a slobber knocker. It could even be a a whole old fashioned stem winder. Or did I say that already? You said that already. Well then As Lance Russell would say, yes. old fashioned stem winder. Well, whatever it is, all of these words may apply to Cedric Alexander and Shelton Benjamin against Veer McMahon and Sanka. And they didn't even give Shelton and Cedric an entrance. They were joined in the ring, and the heels jump-started it and basically threw Shelton through the ropes to the floor where we never saw him again. It's like he fell into a manhole. I was riding fast forward. I didn't even know Sheldon was in this match. No, that's the thing. They were standing in a corner. Suddenly they jump-started it. Boom. And they turn around and they just shit-can him through the ropes. He goes down on the other side of the, the camera or the ring from the camera. And you never see, he never stands up again. And they hit a move on Cedric and then stood up and the referee checked Cedric and said, no, no match. He can't, he can't go on and waved it off, and then they gave him another double-team move and stood up and luxuriated and glorified. And again, you never saw Shelton. He was thrown out of the ring into apparently a bottomless pit and never even got up to fucking wander off. And that was that. So Bray Wyatt's got him. Bray Wyatt has got... He's kidnapped Shelton Benjamin. If anybody's got the number of Rocka Khan's lawyer, <laughs> we need to get a kidnapping charge set up. Anyway, well, it's time for our main event. And what a main event it was for the World Heavyweight Championship number three, Seth Franklin Rollins and Damian Priest. They set it up at the top of the program. None of the judgment day at ringside. It's going to be one-on-one. And did you notice, by the way, again, the WWE is on a roll. The arena was jammed. They had people all the way up in Hartford and all the way around to where the stage and the entranceway and et cetera blocks off the the view. And even then, it looked like some of them were behind. And I've been in that. But that's the building. Not only was it WrestleMania, what was it, with Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam? Which number was that? Eleven. Eleven was in in Hartford in that building, but also that's where Brett and Sean had their pull apart in the bathroom, and Sean got the bald spot. And uh, it's it's a it's been there for a while, but it's a nice building anyway. It looked good, and it, there were people everywhere. It wasn't like constant lights and sets and grids and screens to where it it looked like an old time you know wrestling atmosphere. Anyway, 
They seemed to be into it also. They had the signs, whole nine yards. And they gave this match time. There was 22 minutes left in the show with the bell. And they started hot, and they were starting to back and forth. And even this match, a minute to the break. Brian, did they show the complete on-court entrances and introductions for the NBA Finals and start the first quarter and go to break a minute into it with action going on? They wouldn't dare. So even for this match, but nevertheless, they gave it plenty of time, but it was spread over three segments. So when they came back, Priest stopped him out on the floor and got heat. And I think they went back and forth, and they, it was a very modern-style match, but not only did they do a good job with it, but Priest, who would be the the one, the inexperienced one in this equation, hung with it all the way. He didn't get lost. He didn't make any mistakes. And they worked well together, and they kept going back and forth. And they would end up doing the big explosion and payoff of a spot, you know, to go to the break, like Priest catching him on a dive and face planting him on the desk. But then the only thing that, again, I just have to scream about because they were doing so good is finally they come back from that last break and they're fighting on the top turnbuckle and Seth hits a beautiful superplex off the top. Holy shit, boom, they both hit flat and bounced. And boy, and then they roll right up and both of them try to start doing that fucking stupid falcon arrow thing. What is a fucking falcon arrow anyway? Is an arrow sticking out of a bird's chest? <laughs> what? <laughs> what is it? I hadn't thought about the literal definition of the whole. What is a fucking falcon arrow? And why when you've just taken this big flat back bump off the top rope, whether you've given it or taken it, it looked like a million dollars and boom, and there you could land and sell, but instead they roll right back up to their feet and now Priest goes to pick Rollins up and he's the one that got the superplex delivered to him. But then Seth blocks it and then picks him up and hits the, the bump that's a third of the height and the force that he just fucking gave the guy that he didn't sell, but this time he sells it. What? And why are we mad at the Falcon? Anyway. Is there a bird that you are mad at? You know, the goddamn, the turkey buzzards are a nuisance this time of year. Turkey buzzards? You don't have turkey buzzards? I don't think so. The goddamn wingspan on those turkey buzzards, about 10 or 12 feet. Look them up. They'll carry a dog away if you let them. Anyway, so then they really started going into the big stuff, and they get numerous two counts back and forth, with, and they're, the people are into it, but they're not rushing through this. They're, they are selling some things. It's just, you know, sometimes they're not selling others. And then finally, what a fucking bump. After they go through some of these two counts, they end up on the floor, and Seth gives the buckle bomb to Priest into the barricade but he didn't get his arms over the top of the barricade. He threw him flat down on his ass on the floor and his back hit the barricade. And I'm like, God damn, that probably stirred memories of hemorrhoids past. And then as he throws Priest back in the ring, suddenly Finn is there at ringside. 
Okay, he came through the people, and he nails a super kick to Finn, Seth does, and then goes back in, and Priest hits a big clothesline and chokeslam and gets a two count. But then when he gets up, he sees Finn, and he says to Finn, Priest does, why are you here? Because they'd made the deal, see, before. And this is why I'm thinking that there's going to be more dissension out of this, because as soon as he looks and says, why are you here? Then he goes for the razor's edge, but his bad shoulder gives out. And Seth hits a couple of strikes and the curb stomp one, two, three. But then as Seth Franklin leaves, there's the face-off between Priest and Balor in the ring, and then my DVR froze. Did they exchange any comments or just look at each other in a menacing fashion? That was all I saw. Apparently then more, more later on this, but it's a good match and priest is a top guy and they need those. I'm just, I'm just wondering again. I know it's a different show, but you got one, one group having strife in internally. I'd leave it at that for the, for the promotion especially since it's a top angle in the fucking company. Does Rollins feel like a world champion to you? No, it's not. Right now, I mean. No, because it's not that. And I mean, they did a great number for this show again. Raw's rocking too, as well as SmackDown, we'll talk about. But it's just, again, it's not the guy. It's the, it reminds me of when, Jerry Jarrett wanted to make the CWA world title. It wasn't that Billy Robinson or Austin Idol or Jerry Lawler couldn't be accepted as world champions. It, it was brand new and it was kind of, you could kind of tell, we, we need a belt. <laughs> and it's, to me, this is still with Roman Reigns, the guy, nobody else can be the guy. And any kind of world champion, universal champion, global champion, whatever descriptor you're going to use for it you got to be the guy not guys if you were going to turn one of them babyface would you turn damian priest or finn bauer uh, i don't think with finn he's just starting to kind of as we've mentioned get enjoyable in the judgment day as the as the wise ass with the whiny voice that can drop falls when needed because the other ones don't need to get beat right now. A priest will be a good baby face, but he should be more of a top single heel first in, on this run before I think he becomes that. So I don't know that you turn either one of them. Maybe right. mommy, maybe mommy can play peacemaker. And give them both a piece or two, and they'll be peaceful. Oh, those are your words, not mine. And that was Monday Night Raw, not mine. And uh, <laughs> speaking of things, let's get all the reviews out of the way and all the bad stuff, all the sad things that we're going to talk about out of the way. Magnum TA featured this past week on Dark Side of the Ring, Jim. And of course, you were the star of the episode. Great job oh, on it. Oh, come on now. I was not. Magnum was the star of the episode. Um, I was merely spitting facts, as the kids say. Um, no, ag again, this one we talked about was more, it has a more uplifting tone by the end of it because 
Magnum did go on to have a successful career, even if it wasn't in wrestling and, and do well and have, you know, family and et cetera. And he was there to give his, his insight, which a lot of the people that are the subjects of the dark side episodes are not able to is be there to give their, their story personally. So, but I think it, it, I know you don't like some of the historical inaccuracies that come from trying to do, you know, a guy's 30 year story in 45 minutes or whatever. But in this case, there wasn't really any problem with that because Magnum's window into business was so short and that he made such an impact so quickly. And then the tragedy was so high profile and, you know, and then soon after, you know, he was, in, in, not involved in the business anymore on an ongoing regular basis, but those that was the hottest period of NWA business, so the matches still exist to this day everywhere, not just the network, but in on everything. So it, it's like they just really had to tell the the brief story of how he got in the business, his meteoric rise, and the crash, and that was a more linear story, easier for people to understand. But tell me what you thought of it, besides blowing me. Come on, we're not Uncle Dave and fucking Alvarez. You're not a train hey. ship. You don't, you don't have to tell me I was the star. I could, I can be the best friend. No, you're the best one in all these things. I mean, being very honest with you, I don't know why Jake was in this. Jake really didn't add too much. And when you think of Magnum TA's career, Jake wasn't around too much. <laughs> Maybe a, think- a minute in Florida, but no. I think they had done the sit down with him and they just asked him, what do you think of Magnum? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was all right. I'm not a, I don't want to say too much bad stuff because you like these guys. I'm not a fan of their style. Oh, come style. on. I'm not a fan of their style and I'm not a fan of, uh, you mentioned I'm not a fan of the inaccuracies. The script has always been a problem, but maybe the worst thing about this show is Jericho as the narrator. And I understand the benefits of having a dual citizen or more specifically a Canadian citizen as the I mean, narrator he's, for a he's, Canadian he's, production. He's a a bi-coastal person or bi-country person. But when you have him just reading the script as slow as he can, and he sounds bombed, I don't know if he is or isn't, but it didn't sound natural. Not the way a narrator should sound. It sounded like, all right, we'll use this guy for the tax credit. And then I don't even build up the fact that it's Jericho. Just use any random Canadian if that's what you're going to do. You're saying he's not Liv Schreiber. No, he's the best. He's the very best of all time. When you see him in a movie, it's like, I can't even believe it's the same voice. Like, doesn't even seem like the same guy. Mel Blanc is a guy I would have picked if he was still around to do this. I don't know if he would have picked you, but I think the narration and the, and the, I think the narration is pretty spectacularly bad. Well, but on a more positive Nothing note. about Tully. Not, that was the other thing I was surprised <laughs> with. Nothing. I mean, he ends up married to Tully's wife, well, the wife of... Next to Nikita, his most famous opponent, not a word about any of that. Well, that that was one thing that was kind of glossed over. When she got the lower third, Courtney Blanchard Allen, and that was a whole situation that went on in Charlotte at the time in the late 80s. I, and I did notice his first wife, Magnum's first wife, Tamara, it was nice of her to get up from the programming center where she had just had shock therapy and, and was hypnotized. Oh, stop it. Will you stop it? It sounded like she had been a combination of hypnotized and on sodium pentothal, truth serum. She seemed like a very, very nice woman. 
If I could ask you a question, because you referenced something, and it was kind of referenced in the documentary, but never overtly said. I, I actually don't know the answer. You said Magnum TA has been successful after wrestling. What does he do? What has he done with his life? I have, am not going to pretend to give you all of the details, because I've seen and talked to Magnum at various points at FanFest and et cetera, but... Um, among the, th a couple of things I know he was, he was doing, he was, um, oh, God damn it. You know how I am with technology, cell phones, cell phone towers, cell phone technology. He started some kind of company or was involved with some kind of company at a high level that did those things for a while and then branched out into God damn. I think I've actually got an email from him at one point where it had his job title, but he's been successful in actual business. Not, you know, show business. Good. That's very good. <laughs> anyway, what I was going to say, did you love the old footage though? Again, again, all those people, whether you see them in the arenas, whether it was the wrestling footage, there's all those girls jumping up and down and it's not, like here and there, you, that was the Crockett crowd in the 80s, was entire ringside sections with maybe 10% of them were men. And I mean, you can see the pants, and they're jumping up and down, and they're wearing the T-shirts, and they're frothing at the mouth like it's the Beatles. And that was for the rock and roll, for Magnum, for Dusty, et cetera, et cetera. But then, as we, I think, mentioned, for whatever reason, we were talking about it a while back, what a major American city now would be not paralyzed, but in a state of perplexion and grief and upset over any professional wrestler having any kind of accident or issue. The internet would blow up worldwide. Everybody that's into wrestling would obviously be upset whether it be the iron sheik passed away or superstar billy graham or there'd be tributes or whatever but this was charlotte north carolina front page news of the charlotte observer on every six o'clock and eleven o'clock news people candlelight vigils outside the hospital the fucking mood at the arenas after the news got out the over the following week you could tell a still thousands of people are showing up, but there was a different feeling. What wrestler today in any particular city or state, but maybe Lawler in Memphis, he always gets headlines with health issues, but that's not even fair because that's from 50 years ago. What wrestler today could make that kind of impact as Magnum's accident did on a, a Charlotte at that point was the second biggest city in the Southeast behind Atlanta. There's nobody of, of that level that's over to a mainstream audience. Of that era, the only other wrestler tragedy of any sort that got anywhere near that attention, I would assume, would be David Von Erich's death. Yeah. And well, and, and again, that's I'm talking about what wrestler today could even No, I don't think I don't think you could nobody. do that today. Because even yeah. like in MJF, for instance, when he goes to Long Island, he's a baby face, they know he's from Long Island, but that's once every six months or whatever, as opposed to Magnum T.A. was local. He was theirs. David Von Erich, those girls in Texas loved him. They had watched him for years. It's a different relationship that yeah. the fans locally have with wrestlers nowadays. Well, and now in punk in Chicago, I mean, and I'm not wishing any ill on him, 
and I'm not trying to say that he's not a wrestling draw in Chicago, but if Punk was in a car wreck, would it be, would there be candlelight vigils at a hospital in Chicago? Would it be on the six o'clock television news on every channel? You know, maybe for a minute, but it wouldn't be the, yeah. it, there's just, there's If the Young no, Bucks super kicked themselves to death, would Cucamonga <laughs> shut down? If, if the, if the exploding sneaker backfired and lodged <laughs> in his brain, would, yeah, would Cucamonga be flooded with grief and have a state funeral procession down the main street? No. Cause these, that's why the, anyway, back to the Magnum special, that's what I'm, the footage that they had of the, of the people answering the phones at the hospital and of the news footage and of, of the, you know, comments from the fans at the arenas, a lot of which, you know, Crockett had shot at the time and, and, uh, you know, it was on their television as well. You know, that just showed you it was a bond that that's why wrestling was so hot because those guys, those personalities had gotten over and the people were into them and they lived and died with them. It wasn't about, oh, I hope Magnum can do a belly to belly suplex again. It was no, they wanted to fucking wanted Magnum to be the world champion and, and all the women wanted to marry him. What did you think of, and again, without making any comments about her appearance, what did you think about the wife saying how she found the Polaroids, or I assume Polaroids, photos in the luggage of other women? How many wrestlers, specifically in Mid-Atlantic, did that happen to? Well, there was... <laughs> at, at some points, there was the occasional picture or pair of panties or whatever that mistakenly ended up somewhere, but... But no, that was, you know, it was kind of shit that took place, which is why they, among the reasons that, uh, you know, they split up at that point. And, you know, similar things were going on with uh, the Blanchard family, which is why that I don't want to talk about everybody's goddamn it, it, days of our lives, um, but uh, but those things happened. And, you know, sometimes... If you wanted to fucking fuck with somebody, somebody would fuck it. And of course, you'd, you'd, you'd make sure that they found out the real story later on. But I've known a couple guys that actually fucking put, as a rib, put a pair of panties in another guy's fucking bags and carry them home and see what would happen. Oh, no. But then, but then, then they would cover their tracks because they would fucking let the fucking wife in on it and then just fuck with the guy. Nevertheless, back to uh, the but dark side of the ring, Magnum TA. Just it was a, it was a nice, I thought, encapsulation of the story, the basic story that Magnum got screwed around by Buzz Sawyer when he wanted to break into business. He was a fan when he was a kid. His father Dan, what a personality he had. He'd have made a good wrestler, fucking twenty years before that, and he said, "Fuck it, I'm not gonna take that lying down and." Gotten a bit Chase Sawyer, got in the business anyway, and in the space of five years became the hottest baby face in the NWA under Dusty and the next world heavyweight champion before the accident. And that, you know, that was and and also, you know, in Mid-South, I've talked about when we worked with him in 84, when they had teamed him up with Wrestling 2. That was the first program we had in Mid-South Wrestling. Even though he was green and 
you know, he would manhandle you because he was so stout and Bobby would come back to the corner like, oh, Jesus Christ. You could tell the people liked him and he had fire. He had that intensity overall that people got with and and whether he was selling, even though he was green, it looked legitimate. It looked like he was in a fight, everything he was doing. And when he made a comeback, the, then the when he was green, the heels felt like they were in a fight. Uh, but you could tell he had something in, and he was like 24 months in. What did you think? Because there's always been that debate about whether or not he was going to win the NWA title and whether or not it would have happened at Starcade 86. What did you think of him actually telling the story of going out to eat and being told that we got the blessing from Bob Geigel? <laughs> uh, again, this is also the same thing. David Crockett earlier in this thing goes, I'm David Crockett. I'm Jim Crockett's son. And then they showed Jim Crockett Jr. So yeah, it's well, it, Jim Crockett Jr.'s son. Actually, they showed both of the Jim Crockett's. They just showed Jim Crockett Jr. next to David wishes he was Jim Crockett Jr.'s son. They, be never, much younger. they never referenced Jim Crockett Jr. He just says, I'm Jim Crockett's son. And they put up the image of Jim Crockett Jr. <laughs> but what do you think about the idea that, according to Magnum here, the title switch was agreed to. It was going to happen. Well, no, but but they, they, it, you may have gotten that impression in the editing. It, they, they said it was agreed to. He, he was going to be the champion, but it wasn't going to be at Starcade 86. As we've talked about, that was such a quick turnaround. I think they were going to hold it off. And another thing they said in this program was that, because Jimmy Garvin was on it, they just started an angle between... Magnum and Garvin, because Magnum had finished the best of seven series with Nikita. And while Jimmy says, oh, we were going to blow the territory wide open. It was already blown wide open, Jimmy. If we couldn't, the, we'd need to build bigger buildings at that point to get any more people in. But Magnum was going to have more triumphs in shorter term things than the thing with Nikita. Over more of the heels in the company, I think before I would look at that point more like a Great American Bash the following summer type of thing, where you can see Dusty wanting to replicate something maybe in Charlotte at the stadium, where instead of Flair coming in in a helicopter, it's Magnum coming in with a fucking band of Hell's Angels. I don't fucking know. But this was the middle of October. Starcade was Thanksgiving into November. That's still quick. I think it was going to happen. Uh, it just, I don't think it was going to be that quick. Crockett Cup? Um, it, I don't, I don't know. Baltimore. What was that, April great, 87? Yes. Baltimore would have been a great location and it would have brought the house down. But I think to put the belt on Magnum, Dusty would have wanted it to not be in the middle of a two night tag team tournament that's labeled as such it would be remember he always labeled great american bash the price of freedom or whatever it would have been something on a big show whether it be starcade or great american bash or something where he could label it after magnum's quest you know it, it, dusty always named shit remember when he had a loser leave town match in Florida with him and whoever, it was the last tangle in Tampa. And so whatever, Dusty loved Magnum. 
and he would have wanted to make that. Remember Starcade 86, Night of the Skywalkers? That was the subtitle because, you know, the, the scaffold match was the draw. The, the year before, Starcade, The Gathering, because they'd come on the idea of the double location. We're going to sell out Atlanta and Greensboro. And the gathering of the fans. Dusty loved themes. If and if it was a if it was a show he'd done before, he wanted like you know, the the sequel title. You know, Star Trek Four, The Wrath of Khan, whatever the fuck it may be. So I think it would have been a show built somewhat around the theme of Magnum finally climbing the mountain. And you think it probably would have been at the earliest around the time of the Great American Bash. Well, because think about this. After Starcade, I mean, again, the Bunkhouse Stampede was a Battle Royal-themed thing that went through Christmas. And then the Crockett Cup, just three months later, was the next big major show that they, that they did at that point. And again, Crockett Cup, two nights in the same location, massive house, great, but it's themed after tag teams. And then the bash would have been the next thing, the next big series. It was presented in this documentary, I want to say by David Crockett, although I'd have to go back and double check, by Magnum getting injured, Magnum having this wreck, was one of the contributing factors towards the NWA not being able to succeed against Vince McMahon and having to sell the Ted Turner. Well, do you think that's the case? And whenever anyone looks at the problems that came into the booking in 87 into 88 do you think magnum not being there was part of the problem because dusty although he did well with turning the key to babyface do you think it messed dusty's plans up not having magnum there um well yes yes it did mess his plans up and no it didn't contribute to the sale to turner broadcasting two years later and I'm not saying anything bad about David. David would like to romantically think, well, you know, if that hadn't happened, but even though Magnum was a draw and an attraction, it he wasn't, even if Vince would have gone on even without Hulk Hogan. He just wouldn't have gone on as far as fast or as profitably. Crockett Promotions, the problems they had two years later had, were more, and even if it was, it was more than Dusty's booking. It was more than having lost a couple of stars. It was more than, to be honest, because of the timing and the crucial nature of what was going on and the facts that we can look at the gates before and afterwards, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson leaving and going to New York hurt Crockett's business multiple times more than Magnum's wreck. In actuality, not in theory. In theory, we're saying if Magnum hadn't had his wreck, then business would have been better over the next two years. That's theoretical, but it's empirical evidence that when Tully and Arn left, the bottom fell out of the fucking house shows and never came back. We we had done two or three hundred thousand dollar plus gates in the few weeks before. Tully and Arn left and only did one afterwards for the next six months. So with when Magnum had his wreck, everything that was so hot at that point 
that it not only didn't affect business, it may have helped business because it drew more people's attention into what was actually going on right then and or Nikita suddenly doing the babyface turn, I cry for Magnum TA. That was even hotter than what, you know, Magnum's current program with gorgeous Jimmy Garvin would have been. This was a big fucking deal. Dusty and Nikita together, the superpowers. So it screwed up the plans and a lot of the long term, but it actually goosed business at the time. Whereas two years later, I mean, they still had Dusty, they still had Flair, they still had a lot of people, but the problems that Crockett ran into, as we've documented on this program umpteen times, were more business infrastructure oriented and interference from Vince sabotaging the pay-per-view clearances and locking them out of a lot of the buildings. And they're, you know, just trying to get too big too fast rather than any talent that they had or didn't have on the roster. How different do you think Magnum TA's career would be if Barry Windham hadn't jumped to the WWF in 84 and aligned with that question? Was Magnum TA the kind of guy, from your estimation as someone who was there, that could have had a run that would have lasted a couple more years in Mid-South, the way a Duggan or... Well, really, Duggan's the best example because he was a babyface at that time. The way that a Duggan or a Steve Williams or other guys did. Would Magnum have had that kind of run there if he hadn't gone to work for Mid-Atlantic or Crockett? Yes, and he probably would have wanted it and stayed there for it because if Dusty hadn't called and said, hey, I got this opportunity, Magnum had been figured in in Mid-South since he got there and had evolved and learned, and it was the perfect, for a guy like Magnum that was athletic and good-looking and serious and coachable, and a grown-up adult, even you know, even with his age, sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't. Watts loved that kind of guy, and he saw money in him because he featured him the whole year. From the, the year we got there, he was the tag team champion when we got there. And by the time we left, he was the North American heavyweight champion, right? So Watts would have done with like he did with a DiBiase or with a Duggan or with a dog to a dog to a lesser extent picked up on a lot of it, but he got by on charisma and star power. But he would have taught them the intricacies of the psychology of the business and et cetera. And the, he'd have been Magnum would have been in Watts's military school for wrestling and probably been a more experienced worker and more well-rounded than if, than if he'd have than what he did, which was take Dusty's offer and jump in. And remember the belly to belly 60 second win streak was not just because he wanted to get Magnum over dominantly. It's because still as a single in that, roster pool with the flares and the blanchards and all those guys he was still a little rough when he first got to crockett still a little green so the idea was smash him over on television and people will think he's so good he beats people instantly and then have him put his time in in the house shows where the more experienced guys can 
work with him there. And and it, that worked too. But um, that's the thing. If Barry Windham had left and Dusty hadn't had a spot open and called Magnum, Magnum could have stayed easily in Mid-South for as long as he wanted to, as long as he could take the travel and the schedule. And he would have been a perfect guy that Watts would have been teaching. And then it would have been opened up for him to go to Florida or to the Carolinas or to anywhere else in the business. He would have been in demand. Or Watts would say, sorry, we booked you into Dallas. Cancel your plans. <laughs> well, it could have been Dallas too. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he could have gone anywhere. And, 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 and I'll say one thing. He could have gone anywhere. I don't think Vince would have been after him. And the reason why, maybe, maybe he would have to some extent, but he would have changed him and ruined it if he had him. Because Magnum, didn't, he didn't smile. That's one thing. He had a smile. He's a smiling person, but he was a serious straight ahead. He wasn't, he was the best friend. Uh, the, in, the, in an action movie, Vince would have wanted him to be smiling and happy, like the kind of best friend in the buddy cop movie. Whereas he's more like the fucking Schwarzenegger. And he was just serious about everything and fucking bore straight ahead and the people got behind him. I don't think he would have been good doing any type of levity or, you know, or having a food fight on the set of Tuesday Night Titans. I think that would have been the antithesis of what got Magnum over. The leather jacket and the fucking biker look and the mustache and the fucking... I'm going to kick your ass. And he looked like he was really trying to do it. I guess one of the good things about watching this is the fact that it's a dark story. I mean, it's dark side of the ring, but Magnum, like you said, he seems good. He's telling this story about this horrible incident that changed his life and cost him millions of dollars, likely. He's got a smile on his face. Well, not a smile, yeah. <laughs> but he seems pleasant. He seems, he lives with it. You know, it's not yeah. something that eats him up. And it, you know, it, I've seen him at various points um, where he does have the, the scooter and or some things that, you know, that help him get around long distances or across a building or whatever. But he's and he still has limited, you know, if any use in his right arm, but he's he signs with his left. He's adapted and adjusted and, you know, he can get around and do a lot of the things that. You know, they said he was never going to fucking do, and he's still doing them 35 years later. Well, that's the Magnum TA story from Dark... Is that what it's called? Is it, or is it just Magnum TA? Mag well, it was Shattered. Shattered. Magnum TA story. That's right. Or the 80s Rolling Stones single, whichever one you want to refer to. Uh, Shattered was uh, not from the 80s. That was from... That was what? from... That was from... Um, some Girls, I lost the name of the album for a second, that came out in... 78? 78. All right. Sorry about that, Chief. That was their attempt oh. to be a punk band in that song, but anyway. Oh, they're a bunch of punks, all right. But it's your program. By the way, speaking of punks, I'll just say this. Somebody gave me this factoid on Twitter. Uncle Dave rated the Battle Royal for the fucking middle school championship on double or nothing the same number of stars as Shawn Michaels versus the undertaker at WrestleMania 25. Somebody shared that with me. I just wanted to get that out there. You know, not to go too deep into this, but 
we talk about these things and we review these things and then we hear what Dave says about them. There are having differences of opinion and then there's whatever it is giving Adam Cole and Chris Jericho three over three stars for the match they had there. You can like what you like, but if you're covering shit and then you say your star ratings are not based on your own personal preferences, then what the hell is that based on? But anyway... Let me ask you this. If Bruce Willis was best friends with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, would he be the one being praised as the finest actor of our generation? I think that'd be ridiculous. I hope that'd be ridiculous. <laughs> well, I rest my case. Let's stay on the topic. You brought up CM Punk before, and you brought up Dave Meltzer. Something Dave Meltzer recently talked about. A lot of listeners have sent this in. I have a quote here from his Wrestling Observer radio show. They're bad. Talking about, excuse me, I should tell you what's about. <laughs> I know they're bad. They're bad. This is about Dave's, uh, Dave's talking about the AEW ticket sales for Collision. They're bad. Punk has been moving tickets in Chicago, but not in other places. Not in Toronto, which is not a good sign because Toronto is one of the greatest markets in North America. They sold out Forbidden Door in the snap of the fingers. In, a, in the snap of the fingers. In a snap of the fingers, excuse me. And then for the Collision Show, they're still under 2,000 tickets at the Scotiabank Arena. I was told ahead of time that Regina and Saskatoon, which is actually a dynamite, would be very tough because people in Saskatchewan... They, 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 often, they often ride mooses to the events and the moose trails are closed. They what? It says they don't get good weather very much. They head out of town and they go to the lake and stuff. They head out of town. If you live in Saskatoon and you leave town, where do you end up? It goes pretty much from something to nothing pretty quick, doesn't it? They say that's the height of uh, criminal season in Saskatchewan. As soon as the weather gets nice and everyone leaves, they flee town to go to the yeah. lake. But, okay, but well, uh, 700 tickets, wait, 700 tickets for Hamilton, Ontario for collision right now? Yeah, so okay, I guess hold on here. I'm about to take into account something that nobody's been taking into account, whether it's positive or negative for punk or for AEW or what, I don't know, but... What's the date of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada? I would have to look that up. I don't know. Well, why don't you get this schedule out? Because here's what's happening. The Forbidden Door pay-per-view is in Toronto. And that's what they sold 12,000 tickets to, right? Correct. Then, then they've announced after that fact a fucking TV taping the night before it in Toronto. That's the one where they're saying the ticket sales are so bad. In a different building. That's Saturday, a, June 24th, for the record. Okay, in a different building in the same town the night before. They've just sold 12,000 tickets to a show already. That's what... And then Hamilton, Ontario, is 50 fucking miles from Toronto. So the point is, within a couple of week period... No, within a week. Okay, within a week. They're running the same town twice, and they're running a town 50 miles away. And how much money do they think these fucking people have? How much time do they think they have in their life? What is this, the Grateful Dead, where people are just throwing sleeping bags on their back and going to follow these assholes to whatever building they run whenever, no matter how many times? That's what I haven't seen anybody 
say, what the fuck was this strategy about? And uh, maybe, maybe they're saving money on production, having ever, or travel, having everybody in town. They're not even saving money on production. Now, I think about it besides travel, because if you got to tear down one building and set up another one, you've defeated that purpose. So why are they, they've got the United States and Canada with a combined population of 350 million fucking people or 400 million or whatever it is. And they're in the same metropolitan area three times in a week. And they've already sold, I guess, probably about 15,000 tickets to all three of those shows. And two of them are dying because they're the two that were announced after they announced a show they sold 12,000 tickets to. And the one that sold the tickets is the one that's a joint venture with New Japan. Well, but it was also the one that was announced first and everybody knows what the fuck it was. And they see they're going to, they thought at the time, well, we'll see all the stars. It's a pay-per-view. So then they come in with, and now we're going to do a TV taping with Thunder Rosa and Samoa Joe and others, maybe CM Punk, but it sounds like not for the first week or two. But then, yeah, we, he's going to be there after all. But it, and we just did a segment on the prices of of AEW events. So these events, Toronto and Hamilton, were the ones yes, we talked about. What the fuck do they think these people do for a living? Split the atom and cure cancer? That they're fucking millionaires? The other question, and again, you bring up great points. I mean, if we look at the collision schedule, premiere in Chicago, June seventeenth. A week later, Toronto. And hold on a second. June 17th, where they're going to the United Center, that same week, they're in Chicago at the other building on a show they'd previously announced, right? The tickets are already out for. So they're talking, oh, shit. Punk didn't sell out the United Center automatically. There's a goddamn show three days later across town that you've sold 6,000 tickets to or what? What the fuck? Well, again, 17th is the premiere. A week later, Toronto right around the time of that pay-per-view, the next Thursday, they're in Hamilton, Ontario, so that's why it's within the same week. The next Saturday, July 8th, Regina, Saskatchewan, a week later, Calgary, a week later, Newark. So they're in Canada for a month. But they're going back and forth because they ain't living there for a month. Apparently they're in Canada during the season where Dave's telling us people aren't around, they go out. <laughs> You know, I will say this. And they and don't I've, come back in. I have heard this from talent in that company. I've heard it after I've made comments on the show about why are they running the Northeast so much all at once? Why are they running Texas seemingly endlessly or California? I know they got the guy who used to book stuff for WWE. At some point, he needs a job evaluation. <laughs> because this is getting to be stupid, the way they book these shows over and over again. They killed the Northeast by being nonstop in the Northeast for a little while. And now they're doing it everywhere. Again, Canada's a big country, but Toronto, Hamilton, and then the other show, you say they have two shows in Chicago well, in, a week. in Chicago, is it the Dynamite the week before or the week after the United Center show that is at a different building in Chicago and has already been on sale for some time? I don't know. Um... I didn't know what your Google machine had that, but the, the point is that's with all these things, they're working against themselves. The other question is, we all figure CM Punk being added back into the mix is nothing, not nothing, but it's a net positive, especially for, you would think, ticket sales. 
how much damage has been done to CM Punk for the last year while he's been relatively silent and all that has been done is AEW, whether it was, remember we got an email from some guy who went to a house show or went to some taping and the security guard was ripping on CM Punk. Yeah, and the, the security guard. people were like, oh, yeah. we hope he doesn't come back. We hope, if he comes back, this company will die, I think was the exact term. You had Chris Jericho calling him a cancer, which somehow got out. You had all these various things. If a good portion of the AEW fan that actually goes to these shows, and again, you want to build past this, if they're a knowledgeable wrestling fan, if they're on Twitter, if they're on Facebook, if they're in a group, any of these things... They have seen CM Punk's name drag through the mud for a year. At some point, that's got to have a negative effect on things, too. Off the top of my head, yes, they've muddied the water terribly on all their top talent, as we've mentioned in a discussion here recently, where if you were predominantly a punk fan but weren't offended by the buckaroos, you know, that was, that was fine. Or if you were predominantly a buckaroo fan, you weren't particularly offended by punk but now they basically forced their fans to take sides and you know only a few are going to like both because it, it's been so cut and dried that the 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 sides are so far apart that you got to pick one or the other but uh, then also go ahead no no you go ahead i'll, I'll come back to this well, but also, besides that, I don't think the people trust anymore. They make a big announcement of the show, but they can't even tell us where the first location is. The smart fans know that that's because something blew up with Punk over a steal at the last minute when Tony couldn't stand by his deal. But the average fan just goes, what is it? You know, they don't even know? Or... When they announce Punk will be there, well, we haven't heard CM Punk's name on television in nine months for the people who don't live their life on the internet. The, the exact promotion for Punk at the United Center has been, yeah, he'll be there. Not even a fucking piece, not even a still frame photo shot. Do the people believe it? Or do they want to see, do the fans who do live their life on the internet do they believe he's coming back at this point or will something between now and then go wrong and they've bought their tickets to see a fiasco? It's hurt the promotion's credibility that a lot of people, besides the internet fans, don't know why any of those people were suspended, where Punk's been gone, or why Punk's been gone, where he's been. It, it, the smart fans now can't really believe any of the advertising pro or con because there may be something going on. Some people may be fed up with the whole goddamn thing because now they're like, wait a minute, just because these highly paid pissy ass little fucking cretins, regardless of whose side you're on, can't get their shit together. If I'm going to pay 200 and something dollars for a bleacher seat at one of these tapings. I'm only getting half the roster. They're going to be thinking, what the fuck? I'll just stay home watching on TV for free. And I guess the question in the future may be, should they bundle tickets? Real quick, Jim, because you... Maybe... But I'm, I'm just saying all of those things are playing a part 
Because it's a fucking fiasco. Go ahead. You wanted me to look this up. Some interesting things here. June 17th is collision in Chicago. June 21st, later that week, dynamite and rampage in Chicago. Then, June 24th, Toronto for collision. The next night, June 25th, Toronto for Forbidden Door. Then that Wednesday, June 28th, Dynamite and Rampage in Hamilton. The next night is Collision in Hamilton. Jesus Christ! I didn't know they were running Dynamite the night before there. What the fuck? So that's uh, Toronto twice in one weekend where one of the shows has been on sale as a pay-per-view and has sold 12,000 tickets, and two more the, the following week on weeknights, or at least by the following weekend, in a, bil- in a city 50 miles down the road. Oh, Jesus Christ. Again, I don't know why they... So there's four... Sh- if they, <laughs> they've sold 12,000 tickets to one, so if they sold another fucking... 3,000 tickets to each of those other three shows, they've still sold 24,000 tickets in a metropolitan area in a week, and it still is going to look like shit because it's spread over four shows. I'm telling you, I know a studio is in the option, has to be something a little bigger, but do something like that and make people want to see this stuff before you... New show! New show! Punk's not even on a poster. It's everyone but Punk that we heard about, including Orange Cassidy and MJF. So, and Orange Cassidy's not in the Dynamite poster, which would lead you to think that maybe he will not be on Dynamite. That would be a plus, but then he's going to go kill the new show that we had hopes for. Tony's sticking him on this new show with everyone else. (laughs) Tony inserting him into everyone else's cavity. What do you think of Tony Khan going from not wanting to be on TV to now he's on TV every single week? He has another announcement tonight as we are recording. Seriously. He's, tonight he's going to announce the first main event for Collision. <sighs> and next week he'll announce where you can get tickets for Collision with a hamburger and a soda. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think they're going for chicken sandwiches this time. Um, you know, apparently either he's gotten the idea himself or some of his brain trust, his booking assistants have brought this up to him that now that they have alleviated the problem with him having what appeared to be some type of psychiatric episode when he's out on live television, jumping up and down and talking very quickly and eyes wide open, but not seeing they've got him in the, on the bridge of the starship announcement on the set with the teleprompter. They, I think they give him, I don't know whether they give him oxygen or whether they're a tranquilizer or something beforehand, and he sounds like a reasonable, rational person when he's making these announcements now, and it's not live. So somebody or he, either one, has said, well, now I've got this licked. I can do this all the time. Whereas before people were saying I wasn't doing myself any favors, now I just look like a goddamn artificial intelligence zombie reading off a fucking teleprompter. So that's a big improvement. Because there's no... The only other reason why that anybody in the wrestling business ever tried to put any of their angels on television, and I think the, the audience is smart enough now, an angel is the investor, 
as Bert Prentice would say, my old friend, well, I, I, I think I've found an angel in Huntsville. The only reason to do that was when you were afraid they were about to pull their money. That's why they put Dixie on television and TNA. But Tony's not about to pull his money. So for anybody to encourage him to be on television, well, they're just crazy. Do you think he justifies it because a few times it's popped a number? Well, but he's not popping the number. The information that he's giving. Yeah. It's not like he's Walter Cronkite where people are going to watch no matter what the news is because they want to know what Walter Cronkite has to say. He's in uh, basically a not particularly television-friendly talking head that is imparting the information that they want to know. So if fucking, you know, Mr. Ed or his lovely wife Aubrey was out there fucking given the news that punk was going to be a headlining collision, they would still want to hear that. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see how much longer this goes. But again, it went from, I don't plan on being on TV. to <laughs> now he's on TV every single week, but at least he's got important announcements. Well, we shall see to paraphrase Paul Jones. I've got an announcement to make and I'm going to announce it. Jim, if I could ask you a question, I'm right now in the middle of reading the Adrian Adonis biography. I'm curious, I've never really heard you talk about Adrian Adonis, I don't think you ever would have been around him, but what are your memories of seeing him, and uh, especially, I guess in the early days especially, which is when you would have first seen him, on tape, just a guy who worked like that? I never met Adrian Adonis one time in my life, believe it or not. Uh, we always were in different uh, companies, but... Obviously, um, and I talked to Murdoch about him a little bit because he and Murdoch were partners, but he was an amazing guy. He was not only amazing in terms of what a worker he was, but he was also one of those amazing athletes that even when he let himself get completely out of control and get, was, what was he, 400 pounds by the time he got finished? I think it so, It was yeah. big, yeah. He could still do the shit he could do and take the bumps into the turnbuckle or backwards over the top rope or the backdrop or whatever the fuck. And, you know, honestly, it's sad that a guy that could do all that and was that good couldn't, you know, I mean, it wasn't even like a Yokozuna deal where he was already big and he just got bigger. He started out as a normal-sized, big, you know, wrestler. It looked halfway decent and then, you know, went crazy with it. And it was a shame because you think, what could he have done? You know, that I know he had the run in the WWF, the dress and the whole nine yards, but that was kind of, there was Vince's sixth sense of humor. Adrian Adonis in his, in his prime or even slightly overweight could have been a top heel anywhere at any company in the country or the world in the business. And um, it's a shame that, you know, it, he didn't get a run of very long in the national spotlight before it was just, he wasn't a shadow of him for, of his former self. He was five of his former self. What would you have first seen with him? Would it be AWA stuff with Ventura? Um, I'm trying to think what, wherever he was in the latest part of 79 or through 1980 is when I was first starting to get videotapes. He was in but, Portland, then he went to AWA. 
Okay, AWA would maybe be the first stuff, and the team, well, what were they, the East-West Connection? That's right. For California and New York. Uh, was was Adrian from Hell's Kitchen at that point? I believe so, yes. And actually, originally, he was born on the Lower East Side, I believe. Well, see, and even, that's even more legitimate than Don Fargo, who was actually from Pittsburgh. But um, Did you ever see the greatest video ever, maybe the greatest segment like outside of the ring ever? In 84, Gene Okerlund goes to the Bowery. And the Bowery was still a fucked up place re- back then. Yes, I remember that. Not like it is today, where it's just a bunch of trust fund kids living it up. <laughs> it was a scary place filled with winos during the day. And Gene Okerlund goes down there with Adrian Adonis. Adrian Adonis was born there, and then he was adopted by a family, I believe, in Buffalo. So he really didn't grow up there at all. He was never there. He was just born there. But he's there pretending like he grew up there, and he knows everyone. And they bring Murdoch there. So now you have Murdoch and Adonis with Gene Okerlund in his tuxedo in the middle of the day on the Bowery. Then they go over the Houston Street. Oh, oh and, and now wait a minute. Don't gloss over the one of the better things with Murdoch from fucking Amarillo <laughs> and as Texas as you've ever seen to uh, all of a sudden be in the middle of the Bowery in fucking New York was classic culture shock also. But then they start interacting with just winos on the street and Adrian goes, hey, this is Uncle Joe. And the guy just starts going into it. And then other people start <laughs> coming up to him. People are yelling from up in their windows. It's the single greatest segment from TNT back then. Unfortunately, that's kind of towards the end of him being treated as a serious heel. He came back after the tag team wearing all of his leather with the briefcase relaxed with Trudy. It's still a mystery what that was going to be. Was he going to open it up and Put on the outfit and he was Trudy? We don't know. But then he became, in 86, the adorable Adrian Adonis. So whatever you want to say about the tastelessness of the gimmick, he was still really good, even though he had gained a ton of weight. Yeah. And, well, remember also the run in Southwest? They made him the world they, champion. They made him the world champion. And uh, for uh, to bring you quickly up to date, fellow listeners, at one point... Southwest Wrestling in San Antonio was trying to create, and what would that have been, 82 or 3? 83. Well, remember, it was towards the end, it was early 83 when they fell out with Paul Bosch. That's why they ran that tournament in Houston at the Summit, but also around this period of time, they're on USA Network, but they owe money to the USA Network. Also, I could tell you, because I own the records, (laughs) they owe me money, technically. They stopped paying the wrestling news. So the Wrestling News, the programs (laughs) they were producing with them, those stopped because Southwest owed them a ton of money for issues they had ordered to sell at the arenas. That's why they created a new program in the spring of 83. Well, in the meantime, the the promotion that couldn't pay Norm Keitzer for his program printing was going to crown a new world heavyweight champion. And it was Adrian Adonis because what a fucking worker he was. And they had names that Terry Funk was part of that tournament, wasn't he? Or was he one of the first guys to work with Adonis? They thought he was going to win the tournament. If you remember, the winner of the tournament got Terry Funk's fake NWA title belt, as well as, they claimed, Lou Thez's world title belt. Yeah, and Thez was the referee. In his one um, referee shirt that he wore every time he refereed ever. <laughs> and it was so confusing because the stripes <laughs> went crossways and yeah. up and down, and there was a <laughs> prism pattern, and it used to throw my fucking camera focus off. Why did he wear that shirt? <laughs> I, I, maybe his wife, Charlie, had it made for him and, and he didn't want to hurt her feelings. She's a lovely lady. But um, 
But anyway, so that that with Adrian Adonis, yes, that was the uh, that was the thing. Is he really came on and had what uh, uh, from the time he broke in as Keith Franks uh, as an underneath guy when he got a top spot, it was only five or six years, and then he just ballooned up and was so big and adorable. Adrian and the dress and the makeup and the whole nine yards, and then he ends up as the biography you're reading, I'm sure will end up at, you know, on an independent tour in Newfoundland and runs into a moose. So it's an interesting book. I don't want to say it's a great book because there's some, there's some questionable decisions I've run across so far on what is in the book. You know, a history of the word Adrian or a history of the word Adonis. I, I really don't know <laughs> how much of that was necessary. And there's some unnecessary facts out of sequence. Overall, I've enjoyed it so far. It's nice to kind of read about someone's career, and it's not just a brief thing. You get to expand about a lot of stuff. If you briefly enjoy anything, that's a major triumph for the fucking artist or producer of the thing. You're yeah, you fart in everybody's general direction. But it's only because my shit's so good. Well, either that your shit does it stink. Take a whiff of it and let me know what you think. Well, Jim, let's get to something that a lot of the listeners, I mean, a lot of the listeners have been sending in. Apparently, <laughs> John Moxley on, I guess this would be either his Instagram or his Twitter, uh, I'm not sure, is advertising a seminar, the John Moxley Seminar, for $60, Friday, June 16th, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., Dayton, Ohio, only 20 spots available, and you must have eight months wrestling. The word they were trying for was experience, <laughs> but it says experience. And you could email uh, the fine people here. That, that was the end of your free plug, so we're not going to give you your email address. No, no, hold, hold on here a second, though, because you're, you're looking at I've seen it, and I saw experience. Experience the plumber. Yeah. Um, I speak but, but my you're, own way. I don't... <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. You're looking at it. Is this is obviously he's not just doing this in his backyard. Is it at some location that has contracted with him, some alleged wrestling school that has contracted with him to appear at their location and do this seminar? Or is he just doing it at his house? What's the Well, there's no Is there a location listed that would indicate that it's a business or no, there's an email address, and then very tiny at the bottom right-hand corner, there's a logo that appears to say Pile Driver and very, very tiny Wrestling Academy, as I look closely. So the Pile Driver Wrestling Academy. Oh, the world famous. Turned out so many of those uh, incomparable greats of years years ago. Okay, so How far anyway, is besides... Dayton from Cincinnati? Because that's where he's 40, lives, right? 45, well, depends on what part of Cincinnati, but 45 minutes or whatever. It, it's right up the interstate. Well, with the traffic up there these days, you know, plus if people know that Moxley's coming to Dayton, there may be a flood of traffic heading in the other direction. Because so of the sea of blood coming down the highway. Actually, I was thinking the sea of mud, but nevertheless. Um, that works. So let's dissect this because it's going to be so badass. <laughs> Just say it. Dope and badass. Wait. Okay, either either one. There'll be dope there. There'll be a day. You know, as a matter of fact, the stork that delivered Moxley was later arrested for carrying dope. Just remember, I'm the main dope. 
But let's let's dissect this just for a second. Like a frog. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying to get my grip around. I'm getting my grip head grip around this head or head around this grip. I'm trying to wrap my head around or get a grip on the idea of this individual training or teaching or mentoring young minds in the wrestling business. And that's bad enough without you giving me that nightmarish voice. But first of all, <laughs> it's $60 each, right? That's what it says on the, on the flyer there. That's right. And it's limited to 20 spots. That's right. That's $1,200. And that's before that the guy that's obviously running the Pile Driver Institute of Technology, or PIT for short, takes his cut for even that's the good. use of his, his building for turning the, the lights on, flipping the switch on the air conditioning if they have that amenity. And then he's going to pay Moxley. What's Moxley doing this for? 750 bucks? I'll just run up the road to Dayton and... Teach some fucking jabronis all that I know about wrestling. It'll only take about 15 minutes. If it's a local school and he knows the people there, he may just be doing it for free. I'll go up the road. I'll hang yeah. out at your school for the day. You guys need the money. <laughs> all right. Then in that case, it's a charity appearance. <laughs> in a sense. So let's examine what in the French fried titty fuck that Plumber Moxley needs to be teaching to young impressionable wrestling minds. So let's say, for example, <laughs> is he going to give them, I don't know, tips on diet, strength, conditioning, workout, you know, in the gym, his training program? Uh, it probably wouldn't. We go right to action. Step one, lock up. Step two, blood. <laughs> so, okay, let's go to step two. If he can't teach them anything about their training or their health or their conditioning or gym work, well, he's a, you know, it's noted that Moxley sells like Ricky Morton. You just touch him and he flies. Why, well, that exploding super kick, he was in the hospital for three weeks. No, not really noted for his selling. He sells nothing. He, is, he sells nothing. nothing. Okay. <laughs> well, let's back up here for a sec. Ah, his incredibly firm and professional in-ring work where everything is crisp and looks incredibly brutal and violent and real. You can't see any daylight through any of his, like those elbows or maybe the punch or the forearm. Well, all right, so we've, we've scratched offense and defense. Now, you know, he can talk. He can talk. Yeah. He can cut a good promo. Is he doing promo class? Maybe that's where he ought to be. Maybe he could teach psychology of wrestling because you know all of his matches make so much sense from beginning to end and the psychology is so intricate that you you're on a roller coaster ride of emotions he makes you wait for the big spots until the end uh no we're gonna watch tapes sit down have you all seen rocky three blading here yeah here we go. oh because none of the guys in the business know how to blade anymore. So he can teach you. But wait a minute. You don't need to pay $60 and go to a uh, the Pile Driver Institute of Technology 
You can stay in your own home and watch Wednesday nights on television because he does it right in front of everybody in close-ups on camera. So you can learn that at home. That's one of those correspondence courses. Learn how to cut your head with a razor blade in the privacy of your own home. Johnny Valentine had a correspondence course. Yeah, but he was crippled first, so he kind of got a pass. (laughs) But then, (laughs) I'm just trying to, you know, the old joke, the old joke, guys would, experienced veterans would come up to young rookies that their shit looked like shit, and they'd say, boy, I can learn to work watching you wrestle. And, of course, that meant that your shit was so see-through and obvious that everybody could learn to work by watching you wrestle. And, actually, I think that's probably what the plumber has been teaching everybody with his television matches, is how to learn to work, because you can see through everything he fucking does. And as the old saying, I stole it from Lawler about Lance Russell and used it on David Crockett, David's not here today because he's at the Columbia School of Broadcasting. They're using him as a bad example. (laughs) So I think in that case, they ought to advertise $100 limited to a thousand spots. We're going to hold up Plumber Moxley as a bad example. You're going to watch him for three hours and take notes and do absolutely nothing that he does. And that's how you learn. I don't don't know too much about these seminars in general. The must-have eight months wrestling experience, or experience, as most of us commonly call it, is that a common thing where you don't want just people who just started wrestling school or anything? Well, but again, what is eight months experience? Eight months experience training in some guy's little wrestling school or backyard when he doesn't know shit from apple butter and couldn't say suey if the hogs had him. What's, what's that worth to you? We, we had guys that would come to the OVW seminars that said, well, we've been training at our particular, and this is not every school. We had some good ones. And uh, obviously the, you know, the vast majority of guys had, had trained in some aspect, although Elijah Burke came to it with nothing. No experience whatsoever, no training or anything. We snapped him right up. But it it depends on eight months' experience at what? As I was going to say, the OVW guys would say, we've been training at such and such place for a year and a half, or what have we learned more in this weekend than we've learned in a year and a half? Because we might have had Rip Rogers or Tom Pritchard or myself, Danny Davis, or whoever was coaching or training or guesting stopping by at the time running these seminars kevin kelly was involved in a lot of them and so you would do interviews or you would do uh matches or you would do drills depending on who was in charge of that particular segment of the the seminar and you would be we would see what everybody had right and where everybody was and then we would determine whether we invited them back to continue in the program they couldn't just say i'd like to come here it doesn't matter we want we need to want you so but so an eight months experience in wrestling is that after you got out of wrestling school and you've been wrestling for eight months on the indies that could be eight matches two matches 104 matches against people that don't know 
how to tie their boots. So what are you going to fucking learn? It depends. So that's probably Moxley saying, look to this guy, look, I'll come up there, but goddamn, at least, you know, make it worth my while where nobody's going to just be the shits or just be asking for my autograph. They've got to have some kind of background. Who knows? Do you think Moxley walks through the front door? Or does he find a back way to come in through like a side door? Well, it depends on how good the PA system is in the school <laughs> where they can hear his wild thing playing. But at, anyway, the fact that know, so again, many listeners have sent this in tells you what the story is. People find this ridiculous. Well, yeah, it writes itself because here's a guy who's had ever the advantage of every he he trained at some point with Les Thatcher. Didn't listen, obviously. Less is more. Boy, in this case, he sure is. But this is a guy who's had every opportunity. He worked in the WWE. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the business. He has had opportunities at training programs. Yes, he's somehow, somehow lasted this long at, at in the major companies with, I think that's because the WWE could control him which is why he wanted to get out of there because he wants to do the garbage wrestling. That's his motivation. And they could get something out of him, but what they've got now in AEW where nobody's controlling him is an embarrassment because he's a fucking parody of the goddamn badass that he thinks he is in his head, even though as we've mentioned many times and enumerated, he looks like shit, he works like shit, and the shit don't make any sense. And all he wants to do is roll around and fucking barbed wire. I'm sorry, did I interrupt you, Mr. Moxley? That'll be 60 bucks. <laughs> I hope he sticks his finger up their ass while they're there for the 60 bucks and checks them for hemorrhoids just so they get something out of it. That's another 15. <laughs> anyway, we wish him well <laughs> up there at the... Uh, Power Slam Institute of Technology or whatever it was. As soon as he hits the pit, why, the blood will be flying. Well, Jim, you may be a young wrestling student. You may be someone with eight months or so of experience and you go there thinking a former world champion, I'll get some great advice. You may come out of that disappointed. You want your 60 bucks back. You may want to sue. Well, that's right. And let me ask you this, Brian, because you're an educated man, an individual. It's a graduate of a major university. Can 20 no, people... Well, they they wouldn't have known unless you had said that. Well, we got to be honest. Can 20 people join into a class action suit? Yes, I think a class action suit could be just more than one. Well, there you go. Then in that case, I know exactly who all 20 of the attendees at the seminar of Plumber Moxley need to call. Call Stephen P. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been victimized by one of these shade tree wrestling academies who have, under false pretenses, drawn you in and taken your money to be taught how to wrestle by an incompetent, illiterate, inimitable moron 
like the plumber or anyone of his ilk, then ladies and gentlemen, I suggest you all band together to get that 60 bucks a piece back. And all 20 of you would make $1,200. And for $1,200, Stephen P. New will tie a man to the back of his pickup truck and ride him down the road, dragging him every step of the way. If he don't want to come to the to the bargaining table with a settlement for old Stephen P. News clients, and you can get in on that kind of aggravation and animosity too. Stephen P. New is a man who will chew through the opposition in a legal court of law like they're wearing milk bone underwear and he's a pit bull on a diet. And Stephen P. New at newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. He could get your $60 back for that sim. As a matter of fact, He'll get the extra $15 back for you if you underwent the hemorrhoid examination. And if you had anything else placed or inserted into your various bodily cavities, then he'll probably run up a tab on those too. So if you're going to get inserted, then have the whole work shoved up there because he'll get you paid what for you, every single bit of it. I don't know what you're saying, but none of that. I'm telling you, he'll get you paid for everything. He'll enumerate all the different ways that you've been violated, perpetrated, and orchestrated against, and he will have a tally a mile long. It'll, I'm just telling you'll sound like a slot machine by the time Stephen P. New finishes making the people that have illegally and improperly jacked you around come to the table and spread their money and trading stamps and used cars and anything else they've got to just to try to get you to go away. Because that's the one thing that every time Stephen P. New pays somebody a visit, they can't wait for him and his clients to go away. And they pay big bucks for that to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the consigliere of the cult of Cornette, Stephen P. New, newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. Whether you've been wrongfully terminated or penetrated, or anything else that's been done to you that should not be done legally, morally, and ethically, Stephen P. New is the man you need to call for revenge. That's right, Stephen P. New. More information about him later on. But Jim, let's get some questions here for the remainder of the show. This one, sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Charlie in Starkville, Mississippi. Good to know Charlie's up and around and doing well. Hi, Jim. Matt Hardy recently said The Undertaker and Orange Cassidy are similar. Oh, God damn it! What? Hardy what? said... No, hold, hold, I'll pump the fucking brake. Wait a minute. Pump the fucking brakes. Just... There is no earthly way that a, a human being on this planet can see any similarity between Orange Cassidy and The Undertaker. And Matt Hardy, even, I don't, he can't need a job that bad. Well, again, he has been concussed many times, but here's the quote. In some ways, Orange Cassidy to Tony, at this stage right now, reminds me of the relationship between Vince McMahon and The Undertaker. Taker was Vince's go-to guy. A guy Vince knew could go out and get the job done. Back to Charlie's question. What are your thoughts on Hardy's take on Cassidy? Okay, so he's not saying that he in any way resembles or works like or there is any correlation to be drawn between Pockets and Undertaker in real life, just in Tony Khan's 
somewhat addled mental state in the way that he views. And I'm I, that I can buy. So maybe so Matt ain't crazy. He might still really be looking keep that job, but he's not crazy. It's not pockets looks like or works like or acts like the Undertaker. It's Tony is mentally distracted or challenged or whatever enough to view his company mascot in the same way that Vince McMahon viewed the undertaker yeah. and one of the biggest iconic box office draws in the history of the profession and an amazing locker room leader and veteran kind of says it all, doesn't it? He's AEW's undertaker. That's why AEW needs an undertaker. What would you go to, 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 to have what, done that needs done if he needs something what? done he goes to <laughs> Vince went to take her yeah if he needed a fucking main event of a pay-per-view if he needed a fucking Wrestlemania attraction if he needed somebody to go out and tear the fucking house down that was massively over to literally tens of millions of people that's who Vince would go to what would you go to pockets for Go out and have an indie level match on my national television show for 20 minutes. That's all he's got. Yeah. That's all it is. Or give me some advice that'll be stupid, but I think you know what you're talking about, so I'll listen to it. Maybe he does that. Good well, Lord. Sounds like you uh, don't disagree with his sentiment. You disagree with the actual factual part of it i i disagree with the people involved living on this planet at this point because they're not they're in some outer space limbo the phantom zone maybe the, the, maybe tony if that's the thing that's the problem tony needs to find a planet with a red sun to run so orange cassidy would be a real pro wrestler all right, Jim, our next question sent to CornyDriveThru at gmail.com from Aviv in Tel Aviv, Israel. Oh, I come on. Is Now, is that like Keepsy from Pukeepsy? No, this is a real name, and that's a real city. And let's go to Aviv's question. I started watching wrestling since WrestleMania 9 and the King of the Ring that followed. I was nine years old then. Uh, it's a little bit of an English issue, but I'm trying to get through it. I remember Jim Cornette. As the person I hate the most. Yay! During the storyline of Yokozuna and Lex Luger. Back then, the kids believed that wrestling was 100% real. So I thought you were a scumbag. <laughs> the adults didn't want to ruin our enjoyment of... uh, Well, it's banging somewhere upstairs. It says Marhab shows. I'm not sure what that is. A bit like not telling children about Santa Claus... In 1996, the WWF broadcast on Israeli cable stopped, and it broke my heart. Aww. I was the last in the class to see wrestling, but for me, it was everything. Anyway, enough about me. It's time for my question. Yes. Regarding Hook. <laughs> one. We went all the way from Yokozuna to Hook in 45 seconds. One, what advice would you give him today if he were to ask you what to do with his career? And two, if you were in a place where you could influence the booking personally and would like to favor Hook, how would you build it? 
Again, a little bit of a translation issue, but you get the gist of it. Yeah. Um, it, first of all, with Hook, he got over when they first exposed him, introduced him, when, he, when we first saw him, in, in a way that, and I'm, remember we're fans of his, and I think he's got a lot of ability and a different style, so I'm not downgrading him, but when he first started, I think the fans, I can't remember exactly how it was that he came out, but he was the kid, he had the, the hair and he didn't speak, but he did the fucking jujitsu throws and was impressive. However he came out, they first started the fans deciding that they were going to cheer for him. It was one of those things that the fans do when they decide they're going to uh, boo Dominic so that he can't speak. And then people see that on TV. And then the next crowd at a TV taping, will they pick it up, right? We've seen that with a variety of things, especially in AEW where the booking doesn't lead people to go where they want the booking to lead them to go. It just lets them make up their own shit. And we've talked about Tony didn't follow up on it because he just hooked disappeared and it became a thing that came and went. But at the same time, it would have been hard for them to follow up hook when he started at that level because he was greener than a pepper tree, right? That was, he's obviously trained with his dad and he's worked obviously in wrestling school, but it wasn't like he was going to be ready for them to push him to the level that he was getting cheered at. They didn't know what, it was like Wardlow. They didn't know what to do, but Wardlow, as we've seen, probably wasn't ready, especially verbally. He could have been led in the ring physically, but he wasn't ready to be focused on as a, the world champion to go out and have 20-minute matches with guys. Am I making that plain enough, Brian? I think so, yeah. Okay. But what they could have done with Hook, instead of, him just walking out and eating potato chips or him walking out and goddamn. Hey, remember Tony for a while after the taping, when Tony does his thing where he goes out and thanks everybody, he would just say, and here's hook. And they'd have hook just walk out. It just stupid. They didn't know what to do. And he was green, but what they should have done was just keep him alive in that respect and let him get a little experience a little at a time and work in any independence he wanted to get booked on in the Northeast around where, you know, around home or get ring time at whatever training facility he's training at and just give him a match once a month on Dynamite, once every couple of weeks on Rampage maybe, not on the YouTube with all the other jobbers and et cetera, and have him go three or four minutes against a guy with some level of legitimacy to him as far as look and maybe a little bit more experience, but not top guys. They don't have to beat their top stars for him, but just somebody that could legitimately work with this kid for three or four minutes, let him do his different style stuff and his jujitsu throws and get some wins. And then one would think that from month one to month six, when you've seen him six times on Dynamite, by the and they do all kinds of other hoo-ha on that show, so certainly they've got five minutes. And you would probably be able to see the improvement 
from match one to match six, just in the terms of he's been working steadily and the people have seen him and they know what he's doing and that way they would understand his finishes and they'd understand this one throw that he always does out of a certain thing and they would pop more on it. And instead of just screaming for him because he was there with a funny hairdo and doing nothing, which is what they were doing, and then they quit really doing that because he wasn't doing anything else, you would have some progression in how he's coming along. But that would require forethought. Uh, he's not from California. I don't know if New Jersey has diplomatic relations with Cucamonga, so we don't know whether anybody there's pulling for him. He seems to be, because he's already in better shape and more serious about his business than Maddie and Nikki are in, in their late 30s, he's so not, they probably don't like him. He's not from New Jersey. He's from Long Island. Uh, Jersey, Long Island, wherever the town. Although they say he's from St. Mark's Place, which is pretty funny because St. Mark's Place lost all of its edge a long time ago. Well, maybe if Edge decides to come back to St. Mark's Place, then I didn't. I don't know where Edge and Beth live. I, last I heard, they lived in Asheville. Anyway, back to Hook. So that's the thing. It's just he just floated around. He's done nothing, and now he's in. The, Tony gets a kick out of him being in a random tag team with somebody else because he never speaks to him, and they just look at each other and or fist bump, or whatever, and that's supposed to be a big moment. And we should have heard from him by now. And if he can't talk live, put it on tape. Edit packages. How did he, um, being Taz's son, how did he adapt this style? How instrumental was Taz? Have we ever seen footage of them working out in... Their ring at home or in some training location in St. Mark's Place? Have we seen <laughs> Taz showing Hook the fucking Taz mission or the Tazplex or whatever? They have a ring set up at the former Coney Island High. No, I have no idea. We've never seen anything like that. We've just heard Taz talk about him. And now that Taz is a commentator, not even a heel commentator, just a commentator, he never really says too much beyond. But the other guy said, is no and insight. They, a couple times they shot an angle with Hook, and he said, well, I didn't know that was coming. And Hook has the FTW title belt, which is, again, it's it might have been something at one point, even though it was a made-up belt to begin with. Taz made it something in ECW because Paul's booking allowed it to be done. Whereas this, they just gave the kid the belt, and then he defends it every once in a while, but it's not a legitimate belt. It's supposed to be the fuck the world. I'm the real champion. It, this doesn't fit at all. And nothing's done with it. And since everybody else in the company has a belt from some other company, that doesn't even stand out. And then again, the kid that never speaks, it might get over for a while, but after two years, probably needs to say something or tell us why he doesn't speak to people. What is his motivation? Did Was he a skateboarder and he fell off the skateboard and banged his head and now he can't speak? It's all gibberish? I don't know. Make up some shit. R send out rumors. Get people talking. Rumors? 
Rumors. What kind of rumors? Like the one I just made up. <laughs> but at the point is, <laughs> there's nothing that it's just nothing. And, and so the kid deserves better than that, but you don't know anything about him or what the fuck, how he got this way, or you know he's Taz's son. You never see him even together. They don't speak to each other. It's just ridiculous. It's just another... It, Tony doesn't bring that action figure out of the drawer that often. So when he does, he just puts it in with a few of the other random ones. Once again, the question was about advice you'd give Hook. Well, okay. Hook? Get the fuck out of there. Do everything you can to get accepted into the WWE developmental system if you want a career in professional wrestling. If you, you know, if you're getting paid a lot of money here, I guess, you know, you're a young kid, so draw it as long as it's around and then attempt to get in the WWE program. I'm sure his dad would help him. Depending on how relations are there, I have no idea. He called it a sloppy shop. I think there may still be some problems there. May there may be some bad relations. Okay. Well, it, it, I mean, go work independence, but not just jack-off, deathmatch bullshit and people who work, you know, run their hometown on their birthday. I'm sure, again, his dad's name carries some weight with some legitimate independent promoters that run some decent shows. There's got to be some out there. Stay away from the garbage wrestling matches and the garbage wrestling promotions and get as many reps as you can and figure out, you know, more of what works for you. And I would also tell him, if he ain't any good at promos, start getting better. Because sooner or later, if anybody uses him for real, he's going to have to talk. And since we have no idea what he sounds like, that's a open question. Otherwise, in the ring, he looks very athletic and he has the different style and the shit can get over, but he, there needs to be a well-thought-out reason and background for why he does these things, why he acts this way, how he does these things, and how he learned them, and uh, his goals for what he wants to do in the business. And until somebody's going to book him like that, he just needs to try to figure out everything for himself and get as much experience as possible, working with people that are more experienced than he is and not listening to most of the people that work in his company or being able to tell the ones that you should listen to from the ones you shouldn't. Stay away from anybody that lives in California or Ohio. Tampa. Tampa. Where does Danielson live? California. Okay, we're good. Yeah, well, I, I covered it. Where's Preston Vance from? <laughs> I don't know, because they said he was in the Monster Factory, but then he went with QT down to his other school down there, so I don't know if he's from up here. I'd hate to say so after what I've seen from him in the ring so I'd, far. I don't know. Well, if I'd encourage anybody who's serious about a career in professional wrestling, stay away from Preston Vance. He may hurt you accidentally <laughs> just being confused. <laughs> Next time this guy wrestles on Dynamite, I don't know if he's on this week or not. Next time he wrestles, pay attention. We got to actually watch him work. If he ends up being good, there's going to be a lot of egg on our face. I don't, he, he may be a new flop dollar. He may be the, the curiosity, the can't look away kind of thing. But anyway, that's, that's my advice to Hook. Well, let's uh, go to the next question here, Jim. This was sent via the, cult of, the official Cult of Cornet Facebook group. 
Is there, is there hope for the people still waiting? Are we still ushering people through the doors? We are. It's been a little slow lately. There's been a lot going on that uh, we will be talking about sooner rather than later here on these shows. But yes, keep waiting. And, uh, <laughs> keep but not not. Oh, you're going to be in soon. It's like, keep waiting. Yeah, it'll happen. And also, if you're already in, keep behaving yourself. But let's go to some questions here. From Jerry Smith. Could Jim tell the story about when a fan jumped him in Columbia, South Carolina? Jim defended himself with the racket. Huh. Then the governor's son helped yeah. act as an alibi. What? You've heard this. I've told you this. I don't know. Um, you know most of your stories I think of, I hate to say it, I think of the Mid-South incidents and maybe some of the later WCW ones, but I'm not sure about this one. Okay. Well, it, we're, it's the Midnight Express versus Brian Pillman and, and Z-Man for the U.S. Tag Team title. And we're the champions at that point defending Columbia, South Carolina, the Township Auditorium. And just so happened that, that at the time, the governor of South Carolina was a guy named Carol Campbell, a, a male Carol. And his son, Mike, was the biggest fan in the world, and he used to come to the matches, and he even invited on a, a couple of occasions, the guys to come by the governor's mansion and have, you know, refreshments on their way to the matches or whatever. I did not, I never was on one of those trips, but Flair was down there quite a bit. My love Flair, right? So anyway, the finish of the match is as the baby faces are making a comeback to get in a four way, the referee's distracted. Pillman gets a sleeper on, let's say Bobby. But I roll in the ring, run with my racket, and I'm going to whack Pillman to break up the sleeper, but he sees me come and throws Bobby to the side, reaches his arm around, and catches me in the fucking sleeper. And, oh, God, and my arms are flailing, and goddamn, the people are going crazy. He's going to put Cornette to sleep, and I'm going down, down. And that's when I've dropped the racket, and Bobby picks it up and whacks Pillman over the back of the fucking head. And I roll out groggy off the apron and grab my racket and et cetera. And I'm selling there while a referee turns around. Bobby's covering Brian one, two, three. So we retain the tag team belts, right? So I just happened to have rolled out on the side where the ring announcers table is. And I grabbed the, the U.S. tag team belts because the heels are going to roll out on the floor, leave the baby faces in the ring. We're going to get our hand up on the floor and get the fuck out of there. So, as I t I've got the tag team belts over my left arm, both of them draped over my left arm, I got the racket in my right hand, and I'm headed down the side of the ring toward the heel aisle way to join Bobby and Stan. At this point, and now by, and I should say also, when I've come in and Brian has thrown Bobby to the side and grabbed me in the sleeper, he cross faced me across the nose with his left arm when he's putting the sleeper on so he bumped my nose so my nose is bleeding a little bit but obviously everybody knows i've been prone to nosebleeds so anyway as i'm headed down here a guy suddenly stands up from the front row right leans right over the rail and punches me in the back of the head and boom as i turn around i see he's this big guy he's like six two six three probably wiry guy, lanky, probably about 190 pounds, in his late 30s, regular South Carolina-looking redneck fella <laughs> that would be sitting on the front row, right? So he's punched me in the back of the head, 
I turn around and I fucking come around with the racket from my right hand and I whack him in the fucking head. Boom. Well, he goddamn registers it, but he doesn't sell it. He doesn't go anywhere. He's still leaning over that rail. So now I've committed, right? <laughs> yes. And the cops are nowhere around. So now I have to continue hitting this motherfucker until they get there or elsewise I'm going to give him the opening to hit me. That's generally what happens. So I throw the fucking belts up in the air so I can grab the racket with both hands because it looks like he's going to be a two-hander. He absorbed the initial round and didn't give up any ground. That was a one-hander. So I fucking grab it. Wham! 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 On about the third one across the fight. He's trying to block it with his, you know, on the third one, he stumbles backwards into the goddamn, into back into his front row seat. So now I'm over the rail swinging a couple more to make sure he stays there. And here come the cops. Soon as they get there, then I stop hitting him. And they grab him and I go on to the back. Well, when we get in the locker room, I know from experience, because this has happened to me a few hundred times before that, that even if he hit me first, there's still going to be some chaos or consternation here. So immediately, then my nose is already bleeding. So when I sit down, I adopt my strategy, and here come the cops a couple seconds later. They saw him hit me. They saw him lean over the rail and punch me, but they couldn't tell where, because it happened so quick, right? But I'm bleeding from the nose. I said, yeah, look, he hit me right in the nose. Yep, boy, we see that. And then in comes the state athletic commissioner from the South Carolina Athletic Commission. The old guy, he was there at every show. He comes in. Boy, Jim, you okay? I saw that guy. He hits you right in the nose. I said, boy, look at my nose. It's bleeding. And then I'm starting to feel a little bit better when in walks Mike Campbell, the son of the governor of the state of South Carolina. And the first words out of his mouth were, that guy hit you right in the nose. I said, of course he did. Look at it. It's so later on when it came out in the newspaper, we were come to find out that yes, this guy was in his late thirties and yes, he was six foot three and, and yes, he was a wiry individual, approximately my size, but he was also somewhat learning disabled. Oh, and yeah, that's a bad and, ending to this story. I didn't well, expect. Well, well, but now there is a little bit more to it <laughs> oh because here's the thing. My, then my response to that was, well, he didn't have a sign around his neck saying, don't fight back. I'm retarded. And who's supposed to be sitting next to him to prevent him from punching out the heels at the fucking wrestling show. when you bought him a front row ticket. And it was only a minor fracture of his fucking forearm where he was warding off the blows. And I think just a tiny little cut on his head, nothing like the guy in Altoona that came over the rail and grabbed Bobby, I laid open from asshole to appetite. And there was a piece in the newspaper that said that a couple of people in the second row said that it looked like I was committing an axe murder. <laughs> but... The thing was, in the long run, to protect myself a little bit from any further legal jeopardy, they said, the cops and, you know, the commissioner said, well, do you want to go to the hospital? You know, I said, no. I said, I said, well, you know, I just live in Charlotte. I said, you know, we're getting it stopped here. 
It's stopping now. I've got it plugged up. I, I'll go to the to the hospital when I get home. So in the car, the boys remind me, obviously, yeah, you better go and get a medical, you know, thing. So what I did was when I got back home, I told my wife at the time, I said, I'm going to be occupied for the next couple of hours. Got to go to the hospital. She's what? I told her what happened. So I went in the bathroom. And I and now my nose is not bleeding anymore, and, and he only bumped it. I'm a, you know, I'm an easy nose bleeder. So I had to have something to show the people at the hospital. So I got in the mirror, and I took my knuckles, not the fucking top row of knuckles on your fist, but your middle knuckles in your finger, right? And I made my fist, and I fucking gathered my thoughts, and I blistered myself in the bridge of the nose about three times to get a little fucking swelling. And then I picked my right nostril real hard to get it bleeding again. And then I went over to the emergency room and I told him, I said, yeah, this fucking guy to wrestling matches tonight. He punched me right in the nose. And they had the, you know, the report and et cetera of how I went to the, uh, the doctor and the boy, yeah, you got the swelling and the puffiness and, the, you know, obviously nosebleed, et cetera. Yeah, you've been hitting the nose. And then I sent that in to Jim fucking Hurd. And he sent me a letter back. I think it, was that the one that I reprinted in the Midnight Express book? Or maybe it was another one. But it, on this one, he said, well, the evidence at hand more than substantiates that you were <laughs> assaulted by a fan. But in the future, please do not retaliate as you know, we'll, our, we will beef up our security where needed in the future. If he'd have been involved in the wrestling business in, in that, in 1986 for Crockett or 84 for Watts or 85 for, for Fritz, he would have been writing those letters three times or four times a fucking week to me and everybody else. He had, by the time that he came in, WCW, we had no heat. Nobody was doing anything. So in, I think, in the whole time that, from the time they bought Crockett in November of 88 until I left, Heard was still there in October of 90, I think I was the only one that ever got fucking hopped on by a fan or, or hit one in return. Possibly there was somebody else. I can't remember. All right. Well, the next question, Jim, from the Cult of Cornette Facebook group. But that was what was happening in Columbia at that time. Yeah, I didn't know that story. I don't think I'd ever heard that one before. Jim, he hit you right in the nose. He sure did. Well, Jim, this next question from the Cult of Cornette Facebook group by Jason Monroe. Has there ever been a good use for a non-title match? Yeah, what? Has there ever been a good use for a non-title match? I guess he's not a fan of non-title matches. <laughs> Um, yeah, there, well, I can't say every time they've been used because obviously you don't know what's happened over the last number of years, but traditionally, yes, that was one of the most important things that you could do when you had a champion and a challenger you wanted to make or some issue you wanted to heat up. Even if, it, even if the challenger was already made, if he was a top star also, but you know, you wanted to enter into something. One of the easiest ways in the world is 
for a guy to beat a champion, whether the world champion, the regional champion, or whatever, in a non-title situation. He's got to win over the champion. So with the title on the line, he ought to be able to do it again. Therein lies the reason why the fans should support him in the chase. And that goes back to the dawn of wrestling. And Sam Muchnick, you know, relied on a lot of that because he was so strictly with matchmaking and wins and losses. Sometimes they'd do a TV match where the world champion would be in a partners in a tag team match against a couple of other guys and the unlikely guy on the other team would pin the champion and it'd be a big upset that would shock people. It didn't count in the single standings, but he still got a pin over the world champion, which moved him into the singles title contention. Or the champion says, this guy doesn't deserve a title match. Who's he ever beaten? I'll, I'll give him one, but the title won't be on the line. And then the, the reasoning you can tell the story behind that is that the champion said, well, he may be nervous about this guy. That's why he don't want to put the title up. He wants to feel him out first in a non-title match where, you know, if he wins, it still is not important uh, overall to the, to the championship. Not, not, not important, but it, it wouldn't make the title change hands is what I'm saying. I mean, Brian, what in the world? How is a non-title match in wrestling? Vince doesn't like the terminology. He never liked non-title match, so he would come up with contenders match or for a championship opportunity or some That's bullshit what Tony like does. that. Tony does what is it? A championship eliminator match? Who the fuck knows? You know, I think part of the problem, and, and I'm just presuming, I don't know where this question comes from, but fans were definitely trained after a while that the wrestler who got the victory in the non-title match is going to lose the title match. And I think once that plays out over and over again too frequently, it takes away the meaning of the non-title match. But it didn't always. It didn't always, but I'm saying, this guy, I don't know if this guy's talking about all of wrestling history or right now, he's asking, when was it used better? Well, <laughs> all the way up until modern times, like everything else. But I mean, that's that's a couple of 18 million examples. But I mean, in, in a lot of times on regular shows or on spot shows, for example, if, you know, if Jerry Lawler is the Southern heavyweight champion in Memphis, that doesn't mean if he's on a spot show in fucking Rabbit Ridge, Kentucky, it's going to be a title match. He He might just be in a single match because... Why would the Southern heavyweight title be defended in a small arena in Rabbit Ridge, Kentucky? But otherwise, you know, that's part of, it's part of wrestling. It's what the bookers used to use as one of their tools when they, they actually had to make the shit make sense and develop logically and there were no, oh, we'll just float a cage from the ceiling and have pyro on it. No, we got to do this by being smart and doing shit that we can do reasonably and logically that would be believable, that would make people want to come back and see just two guys fight again. That's what the art of booking was before everybody lost it and they just decided to make up for it with how much money they spend on pyro and, and set dressing. Jim, our next question via the Cult of Cornet Facebook group, is by John K. Cardinal. When a wrestler switches... Wait a minute, what, wait a minute, John K. Cardinal? What is he, a goddamn 
radio newsman from the 1950s? That's his name here, but let's get his question. When a wrestler switches from heel to babyface, is it the norm for them to change their finishing move? I remember the Crusher, as a heel, using the stomach claw as a finisher. <laughs> but when he switched to babyface, he used a couple of other moves as finishers, usually the bolo punch, at least on TV matches. Is this the norm? Any other examples that you are aware of? Uh, no, it's not normal. I'm not saying it can't happen. With the Crusher, you know, the bolo punch kind of <laughs> kind of became, as he got older especially, uh, the thing. Because let's face it, Crusher was always limited. Uh, and, and, you know, just one of the classic gimmicks and promos and appearance. But he wasn't a scientific or technical master. But Bruiser and Crusher as heels and as a heel tag team in the early 60s, both of them used the stomach claw. And then later on, Bruiser became a baby face and was still using the stomach claw in the 70s in Indianapolis when he was the hero of millions. That's not necessarily a baby face move, but because it was Dick the Bruiser, it worked. He wasn't a nice guy, but he was, you know, the, the people loved him. More than switching finishes, the the problem is it's easier for a a babyface to switch heel than it is for a heel to switch babyface and have the matches. And I will I will enlighten you. When a babyface switches heel, he can start cheating, and he can take shortcuts, and he can use foreign objects, or he can do all that nasty stuff and yell at people and everything that's a little easier transition and you can have that match but when a heel switches babyface a lot of the attraction in the fans eyes for the heel now becoming a babyface is that he's going to do all that dirty evil stuff that he used to do and he's going to cheat and he's going to do all these things to the other people we don't like that's and and especially at the first start of a turn and the midnight express we found this out but it's common in most times the heel and this was in the territory days when again everything had to make sense and people were expecting shit instead of just going and wonder what we're going to see the heel that had switched babyface had to still work like a heel. He couldn't just listen to the referee 100% of the time. He had to cheat behind the referee's back, but cheat against the heel. He had to, he had to still be the rough guy that they expected to give the, the new guy that they disliked more than anybody else a taste of their own medicine. That's what this guy's going to do. He's going to give him a taste of his own medicine. And that works psychologically, but when you're having the match, then it becomes hard for the other heel, the, the heel that's now the heel, because you can't let the baby face out heal him, and he's still got to get heat, and there's still got to be points where the, the new baby face that used to be the heel still has to listen to the referee, especially in tag team matches. And so it's a little bit harder to have those matches and the 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 old heel that's now a babyface retain his edge that the people want to see him for. Does that make sense, Brian? I think it does, yeah. 
So that's that's the tightrope that they got to walk. But as far as as a finish, if it's an established finishing move or hold or whatever, then really there's no need to change it over a period of time. Because remember, the Crusher is the example, and he was a wrestler from 1949 until the mid 80s. So over a period of time, these things do change anyway. But there's no, and if it's a real heelish move, right? just a real obnoxious, heelish kind of thing. You might want to find something else if you're a baby face or vice versa, but there's no real need to change your finish if it's over and it's a part of you. You're changing your attitude and the, the opponents that you're facing, you're not really changing your style. You change your style just enough to fit the new role. And a heel or a babyface going to heel will change more drastically. Heel going to babyface to draw money and to stay over still has to have a heelish element to their in-ring just on the people that deserve it. Sort of like Steve Austin when he switched without really ever switching because he was just him. You know, a lot of people have talked about, in their opinion, the rise of and the success of the UFC and mixed martial arts rendered a lot of things from wrestling's past irrelevant and you couldn't really apply it any longer because people would completely not believe. That was an argument we've heard. We've also seen recently, you know, while guys like the Blackpool Combat Club are clearly in that school, it may not look good at times, but that's what they're trying to do. We've seen Solo Sokoa get over the spike, which yeah. on its face is ridiculous. Yeah. But it works and it's over. Do you think we could ever see the claw or the stomach claw work again? Do you think it's just as well, simple as you have to use it and use it well and not make it weak and it will work? Or do you think the argument that fans have seen UFC, they won't believe something as ridiculous as that? Do you think there's any merit to that? No. It, again, wrestling is a business where you have to make the preposterous posterous. And presentation and context and the way that it's sold and the way that it's done and the way that it's talked about is, as you mentioned, with the spike. The, the Samoan spike, it, with Terry Gordy, in the fucking 80s, it was the Asiatic spike that he learned in Japan. A thumb to the, In the 70s, Ernie Ladd had his injured thumb taped up by the doctors and people would, and also Ernie Ladd's thumbs were the size of goddamn Polish sausages to begin with. And with that thing taped up, and people would say, well, there's a piece of metal in there, or something to keep it stiff or whatever, and he'd jam it in a guy's throat and they'd fucking spit up blood. And people would attack Ernie Ladd and risk going to jail when he used the fucking tape thumb. It's the presentation and the context, and if the guy's doing it, seems serious about it. And Solo seems serious, and those guys are taking those bumps, and they ain't getting up from them. So he gets a fucking spike over. The stomach claw, I guarantee goddamn you, the stomach claw will work. And, and if you're an average jack-off, and you've got somebody like a fucking Danny Hodge or a Dick the Bruiser or anybody with grip strength, you know, digging into your goddamn abdomen, you're going to fucking be screaming. Now, whether or not that you could stab him in the eye or whatever with your finger and get out of it, that remains to be seen. The The head claw may be an issue, but at the same time, 
you know, with a, if you've got a guy like almost uh, with that he's seven feet four or whatever, and his hands are 20 inches long and it goes all the way around your head, you know, when Andre grabbed a guy by his head, you would believe with that size of a hand that, you know, he could fucking pop the guy's head like a pimple. It's, it's who's doing it, how it's sold, how it's presented. Anything's possible, but not... Everything's not possible for everybody, but something, anything is possible for somebody. Right? I think so. So I don't agree with the argument that you can't do these things because the UFC makes them obsolete. No, it's because there's always fucking weird shit that can happen and people that can do weird things. And also, again, it's presentation and it's education and it's how that it's done and how that it's sold. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that people are, you can make people believe donkeys can fly. Oh, there's somebody on this planet that you could probably convince that you could, you had a flying donkey. But other things are within the realm of possibility if they don't stand out as just being bullshit on the face of it. And people, the only, the people that are involved in doing it are snickering at it at the same time. Yeah. Also, this is the world of wrestling where wrestlers are having their hands in their pockets or teleporting so the idea that the claw is too ridiculous for fans is somewhat uh, of a ridiculous argument yeah and i mean again there have been some guys in the wrestling business that if they've uh, danny hodge if danny hodge had put the fucking claw on you you would have begged for mercy because he had a fucking grip that could snap pliers and crush apples and it it also it looked ridiculous when Gene Anderson would do his elbow grip thing on like the barbarian or whatever. But he would as middle finger and thumb on the sides of the elbow on that fucking bone in such a way, and Gene Anderson had that grip, and Barbarian would be down on his knees. Please, Gene, say you're a pussy. I'm a pussy, Gene. I'm a pussy. Say you'll suck my dick. I'll suck your dick, Gene. Please let me up. And but it looked ridiculous. But it was a shoot. So, you know, fuck, it's it's how you do something, how you sell it, and who's doing it, and why. Well, Jim, one final question here this week, and we promise we will have songs next week, but we've gone a little longer than we expected, and there's an air quality issue here, despite Jim dismissing this. But, Jim... Every time I'm in a room with you, there's an air quality issue. And now there's noise upstairs. So one final question. Let's get this in quick from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group by Billy Berry. Oh, come on. Would a Ricky Steamboat heel turn have worked at any point in Crockett or the NWA? You know, it, it, Ricky was so talented. If he had felt it and wanted to do it and been into it, then I think it might have. It's just that it was so antithetical to Ricky, the real person. Ricky Steamboat is a wonderful human being not a asshole in any way shape or form very calm level-headed reasonable he may have been i've never heard him say that he wanted to turn heel or that he missed an opportunity or anything and he would just such such a good-looking guy such an amazing physique such a fluid manner in the ring sold so well also had the fire of a baby face and on the comebacks and the martial arts shit which was cool and you know he 
if he was one of those guys that was just waiting to turn loose and say, you know what, I'm going to tell all these people what I think of them and get all my aggravations and frustrations out, I'm sure he could have done it because he was an incredible worker. But I don't see that Ricky Steamboat being any of that. I don't see him having any animosity to get out at anybody. So I don't know if he could have carried it off from a an attitudinal standpoint and done the promos and et cetera. And it, it just if it would have looked right, because he just looked like such a fucking babyface guy. What if he had a valet, let's say a Bonnie? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well, she she was the closest thing that anything ever came in the wrestling business to turning him heel when she was on camera with him. Uh, but he suffered because of that, but it wasn't really anything heelish in the presentation otherwise than people didn't want to see her with him and didn't want to hear about his fucking family. They wanted him to be a cool, kick-ass, fire-breathing dragon, and he wasn't. He was a pussy-whipped family guy in that period in WCW, and that's why they cheered Flair against him. They didn't want a guy who had a, a wife wearing a ball gown that cost thousands of dollars and is you know, uh, in, indulged little son, baby Ricky, they wanted the cool fucking martial arts guy. Well, that will be our final question. And as the noise gathers, yeah, the, the maid doesn't know I'm recording. So she's <laughs> directly the above maid. me in one of the rooms. Wait a minute. You have not, you have not yet let Consuelo out of the house and back to join her family. As I said before, the air quality issues here are legit. We'll talk more you, about them. You on didn't the want to. You didn't want to turn her out in the in the bad air. That's right. You got to protect your staff. You got to protect your people. Yeah, that's what any good leader would do. But with that, the drive-through is closed. Hold on. Let me protect the air. Protect my people. Oh. That didn't work. Yeah, could have been better. Uh, this show could have been better, but we'll try again next week. And of course, Monday on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Don't forget the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel, full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the Travis Heckle artwork you love, the guest artists, and so much more. If you want classic Cornette clips, also go to the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel and check those out. Get access to the archive, full-length show is going back to 2013, patreon.com slash cornet, only $5 a month, patreon.com slash cornet. You can follow me on Twitter at the, that's him. You can follow him on Twitter, Jim is his name, at the Jim Cornet. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You know my shows, you hear about him again on The Experience. Cornet's collectibles at jimcornet.com. Stephen Pinu, 888-692. 8084. Get even with Steven. I'm going to sue my maid. But until the experience on Monday and next week, right back here on the drive through for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Thanks, guys. Tally ho! Have you got a piss? Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive through Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey, Ryan, the Young Bucks, the Rednecks and Dumb Fucks, and them Dork Order Bum Fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella. 
Pensatino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Ponies drive through. Ponies drive through. Ponies drive through. When it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of Cornets. And to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive through. Tony's drive through. Tony's drive through. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Lass. <laughs>